Merson has scored it. the legend Paul Merson, John O'Shea and Wes Brown are coming to Dublin. It's an exclusive off-air event. So if you want to be there, get on to offtheball.com forward slash events. Just eat the official food delivery partner of the UEFA Champions League. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Right, very good morning to you. Thursday morning, the 27th of April, and the title race is over. It is toast, even though Arsenal are still top of the table. We all know they're not the best team in the Premier League because last night, well, last night was the assassination of the cowards of Arsenal by the sheriffs of Manchester City. If you want to get involved in the conversation this morning, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp number. You can uh, leave a comment on our YouTube, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. The stream is live. Or you can tweet us at off the ball. I am Shane is here. Shane, good morning to you. Morning, our things. And Nathan Murphy is here, fresh from, I hope, his own hotel today. Nathan, how are you? <laughs> yes, absolutely. The luxury of the Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> ah, look, you can't be uh, too downhearted. You had the night of your life last night. Uh, it, was, uh, it was very good nice. It was, uh, yeah, uh, there's not too many top of the table clashes that are as one-sided as that and that are as definitive as that. Uh, Manchester City were were out of this world for large parts of its game and yeah, 4-1 probably the least they deserve Erling Haaland could have had five goals so Arsenal probably got away with one It actually reminded me of the Barcelona 5-0 against Real Madrid when Pep was in charge and he was uh, changing the face of football forever it was that dominant and and like Arsenal did well for it not to be 8 or 9 it could easily have been 8 or 9 but spiritually it's going to feel for them like it was 8 or 9 and they know how far away they are now from being a title contenders really because while the, the table suggests that they've been in contention the reality is that Manchester City were going to squash them at some point they just toyed with them like a cat toying with a mouse until the end of the season went ah oh, you had your fun buddy I think that's unfair in Arsenal because this was somewhat in Arsenal's own hands before tonight. So Arsenal were the mouse who suddenly decided, you know what, I'm going to give the cat an opportunity. I'm just going to present myself to them and see what they want to do with me and let them play with me if they want by drawing their last three games. <laughs> if they had this, if they had beaten Liverpool, if they'd beaten West Ham, if they'd beaten Southampton, it's a very different story. And a very different game last night, but it felt as though the hangover from the players that Mikel Arteta and those Arsenal players weren't able to get themselves back up last night. They looked to beat Docker right from the off. And a lot of that, though, I think goes down to Manchester City, who just don't give a sucker a second chance. They were on it from minute one. And we've seen that in their top performances all season, at home against United, at home against Liverpool, that De Bruyne, Haaland, they set a tempo early on, Grealish as well of getting in the opposition's bases, of winning the back again and again and again, and just this relentless brilliance. And yesterday wasn't at times about you know flowing football or any of that. It was just actually, we're going to come at you again. All right, we're going to kill your line and try and uh, reset it there. Obviously, the gremlins in the line. All the way from Manchester. Yeah, yeah, it's tough. It's, it's. I think they have Wi-Fi in Manchester and and, and 4G. Um, flowing football, flowing hair. Sorry, of Erling Haaland. Was it Samson in the Bible had his strength in his hair? 
Yeah. He was eventually uh, vanquished by his enemy and his lover, Delilah. So who's Delilah in this? I wouldn't be a, much of a Bible kind of guy, Jer, but I like to bring some sort of a reference here to, to Samson and, and Haaland. It was, it was a little bit intimidating, and I think that was his intention and purpose. As soon as that hair comes down, you're like, well, he's going to score now. 100%. He's had some chances. Ramsdale has had some decent saves, half chances. They were good saves. Yeah, were, good you saves. Know, they were good saves. Um, there was uh, there was one that wasn't a good save. The one where he's clean through one-on-one uh, at the start of the second half. Scuffed, yeah. I was like, that wasn't amazing. Other than that, um, you would say that there was last-ditch blocks and Arsenal, if you know, if things had gone their way, uh, if all the other chances had been missed, the gazillions of them, yeah. then perhaps it would have been uh, a bit like, oh, yeah, they could have finished better. But uh, Nathan's back anyway, Nathan. Where you know where to go for good Wi-Fi, eh? Yeah, not the Holiday Inn Express <laughs> in Manchester Airport. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how much of that you got. Is that I think Arsenal gave them a chance in the last few weeks, but City were just breathtaking last night. Mm. They, they, they did take it to another level. Even listening to the Pep afterwards, he's like, "Oh, we, we decided to to really play to De Bruyne and Haaland's strength. It's like the most obvious tactic of all time, and yet it was Haaland turning provider. Like the first goal was just ridiculous." Well, it was ridiculous from an Arsenal point of view that Holding would think that he would be able to get in tight, have the strength to hold off Haaland. It's never going to happen. Uh, it was a lovely play from Haaland to lay it off to De Bruyne. But even then, Gabriel seems to just stand off a little bit too much, sort of shows him the way the shot isn't the most powerful shot. It just skim off the surface a couple of times. And you know the match has just started, so the, pe- uh, the, water, uh, the pitch has just been watered. So maybe it's a little bit slippy. But again, you feel that Ramsdale can do a bit more. So, like, Arsenal didn't help themselves with that first goal. But, like, the key to last night was, you know, Pep goes back to a back four. There's no John Stones in midfield. He shows the respect to Saka and Martinelli, who never get a touch of the ball. Like, both of them taken off. The entire front four taken off. But playing De Bruyne just off Erling Haaland. I've never seen the two of them in such close quarters. And you've got two such incredibly talented and technically technical players and two such strong players like the amount of interchanges that they had that just opened up Arsenal at will like that was the key to the game that suddenly you have De Bruyne getting the ball consistently in really dangerous areas and like it was because Arsenal were so poor and never even threw a punch it's I think it's easy to say that you know they didn't turn up and they'll be devastated but I think even if they had a city played like that, they wouldn't have been able to deal with them. I'd love to see it. I'd love to see somebody, you know. Well, that's that's it. I think if you look back on last season, the city of the, the you know the city Liverpool games of the last three or four years have probably been as good as we've had in club football. But even in those games, you think to the two-two this time last year at the Etihad, City played like that for large parts of the game, like where they absolutely crushed Liverpool. You thought there's a massive gulf in class, but Liverpool had a bit of experience and a bit about them where. When they had the opportunity to regather, they come back and suddenly they have their own 15 minutes. I remember last year after halftime, they come roaring out of the blocks. They come back into the game. And Arsenal never had that. Never had that. And they couldn't find a way to get Odegaard, Martinelli, Saka, Jesus into the game. And I said to David Miller afterwards, you do look at that Arsenal team last night. And I said, Mick Cartel has done a bloody good job getting these into contention because behind those three, there was very, very little. They, Sean Roy Phillips was making that, and he was a, a bit of a rib of, of his uh, dad on Twitter, uh, close to the end of the game, slagging Arsenal. But he was making the point after the match against City, you can either adopt the high press and really, really press them. You can sit back and let them at you. But but Arsenal seemed to almost be somewhere, as John Virgo might say in the snooker commentary, betwixt and between. They were a little bit of a mid press. It was almost like they were non-committal, Nathan. They didn't know which way they were going. 
Yeah, and it was interesting looking at Guardiola and Arteta and one of the great things from our commentary position at the Etihad is you're right behind the two technical areas. And I've never seen Arteta as subdued during a game. He never seemed to raise his voice to the referee even, didn't wave his arms, didn't just gesticulate at any stage during the game, just sort of stood there with his arms crossed and looked a little bit lost, which is totally at odds with the Arteta we've seen for so much of the season where there's been so much emotion from that, you know, what he's had on the sideline, you wonder if it's had a negative effect at times. Maybe he'd made a conscious decision. He wasn't going to get built into a, a night where, you know, the atmosphere at the Etihad was rarely as hyped as it ever was last night, whereas Guardiola was the complete opposite. When the first goal went in, Guardiola didn't run down and celebrate with Kevin De Bruyne. He ran onto the pitch and berated Ederson about something that had happened five minutes later that had been annoying him. And he was at his players constantly about them not pressing high enough, about them not going long, quick enough. Whereas Arteta just seemed a little bit quiet. And you're right, it felt as though while City City changed their tactics from the last few weeks out of respect for what Arsenal had done, Arsenal just sort of rocked up with the same old, same old and hoped that it would work, well, even though it hasn't worked over the last few weeks. Or, or ever against um, uh, Manchester City. Is it 12 defeats in a row? Was that the, the stat column had um, in our no. pre, pre-show meeting? Um, 12 defeats. Well, exactly, yeah. I mean, Arteta's beaten every every Premier League team, but he's lost every game against Manchester City. Yeah. Uh, the, I, was, I, I was listening to you guys um, on uh, in the half hour beforehand, um, and when the Kyle Walker news came through, I was like, actually, is Pep getting in his own head again here? Is is this is this the template that we've seen where supposedly inferior teams manage to win one nil? They miss a half full of chances, and that first three four minutes, and there's a chance missed already. Like, oh, and then the goal goes in, and it's completely obviously that completely changes the game. And I think that subdues Arteta specifically because, like, he that's the game up. They're not coming back from that. Uh, I, uh, I don't know. Is this is this Pep reaching some new heady heights, or actually, are we being set up here? Like uh, Real Madrid got hammered at the weekend by Girona. So at the moment, mm. you would expect that this is going to be a cakewalk over the two legs for Manchester City, a team bristling with form and energy, and all their best players playing unbelievably well. Phil Foden can't get a look in, but then has one nice touch when he comes on, and it's like. Um, I expect them to romp home everything in everything for the rest of the season. I actually expect them to duff up Man, Man United in the final. Or Pep gets in his own head again. Far and away. In his box of tricks and feels it too much and is like, we have like seven defenders playing against Real Madrid. Surely not. Uh, they're by far and away the best team in Europe right now. But there have been plenty of seasons recently where Real Madrid have not been the best team in Europe and have that nous and know-how and can somehow get it done. Manchester City have three games in the next nine days between now and then. So they can't take their eyes off that because, again, they are still second while they have games in hand. They still can't afford to slip up. They need to keep this winning run going. But last night was just a return to type. So the last few weeks has been Pep trying something very different and going with this John Stones move into midfield, which has worked very, very well. Last night they went back to what we have seen for the vast majority of the season with just a flat back four. Now Manuel Akanji stood in at left back because Nathan Aki is out injured but it was more further up the pitch that it wasn't as if Akanji and Walker even had much defending to do because it was so rare that Saka and Martinelli got the ball in a position where they could have a run at them where they could do any damage and like Grealish like Grealish last night again 
It's mm. just outstanding. Uh, and you mentioned Phil Foden. Phil Foden's had appendicitis, which has meant the usual rotation that might happen between them. But it is very difficult to see in those big games. And Foden was always, probably after De Bruyne, at number two on the team sheet for the biggest matches of the season for Manchester City. It's very difficult to see how he gets back in because Grealish's work rate last night. Sensational He was the again. one getting back, yeah. supporting Akanji. But also what I thought was interesting was how they used him constantly as the player to try and draw Arsenal on. So he would drop in behind Akanji. They played a little triangle. And next thing, he's gone. Like the, the mm. burst of pace and oh. always picking out the right pass inside. And Bernardo Silva does the same on the other side. He does it. He's just so understated. He covers so much ground. But like they're sacrificing in some ways an awful lot of the games. We, you know, we probably saw Jack Reedish have half the amount of dribbles on the edge of the area that he would normally have last night because he was aware that this was a different type of game. So having them there and basically a sort of straight 4-4-2 in some ways with Gundogan and Rodri in the middle of the field and De Bruyne and Haaland as a, as a front two. Like maybe there's something in, in keeping it simple for some of these games. It's funny, this narrative of, uh, oh, geez, Jesus and Zinchenko, why would, why would Pep ever get rid of them? Look at them, look at the, what they're doing with Arsenal. But in games like this, you can actually see that they're nowhere near. They're not, they're not in the pecking order. And even the rest of the Arsenal top players, like Odegaard and, and Xhaka, would not be players that, that Pep would ever sign. So like, even uh, Mar- I don't know. I don't know about that. I th- again, I think, There'll be an overreaction to this on the quality of Odegaard, Saka, Martinelli. If they're in that Manchester City team, they're getting so much more possession. They're getting so much more of the ball. Martin Keown made the point after the match last night that Arsenal are 10 years behind City. He said they're moving in the right direction, but they're 10 years behind, which uh, which felt like a stretch, maybe an (laughs) over-exaggeration. Not prone to uh, over-exaggeration sometimes, Martin. I'd be sending a reducer in on those guys if I was like, uh, uh, they have VAR now, Martin. Back in my day. Uh, yeah, ten years. But everyone's ten years behind Manchester City on, until, until potentially uh, the results of this investigation come out. And you know, you do have to try and remind yourself that this Manchester City are what is it, one hundred and fifteen different counts they're facing, accusations that they're going to be facing. Now, there've been accusations before. There've been issues before. They managed to get away with it. Doesn't seem to have tarnished them in any way. And they're going to have the medals in the pocket at the end of the season. So you can put all the asterisks you want in three or four years' time. Uh, it's not really going to matter to these Manchester City players right now, but it does feel that's the only opportunity for these clubs to try and get back. Like One team pops up every season and goes on a little bit of a run and puts it up to them. But they are miles ahead of everybody. And like, Are they going to slow down? I don't think so. At are, the moment, are they going to have a summer where Pep Guardiola looks at the squad this summer and thinks, you know what, I'm grand with that? At the moment, it doesn't look no. that way. Yeah, No, it doesn't. And like they're able to sign the Calvin Phillips of the world purely as a spoiler, it seems, to make sure that nobody else then gets a holding midfielder who might be able to influence the season. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's uh, the money is absolutely very important and it's, it's right that you bring it up. I, I do want to play this. This is um, you speaking to Akanji in the mix zone in the immediate aftermath of the game last night. Yeah, it felt great, and we know it's going to be a big, a, a big game. And yeah, that, that's how we played for for ninety minutes. I think uh, we showed a great team performance over over ninety minutes, and that was um, a really important win for us today. Your position at left back, there was a lot of talk during the week that Arsenal might try and target the wings with Martinelli and Saka and the form they've been in this season. Have you played that position often? Did you have much time to prepare for it? 
I think I had two games in this position at Dortmund, but it was like three, four years ago already. So it's not um, something I'm used to. But um, when uh, when a team needs me there, when the manager think it's a, it's a good decision to play me there, then I, then I will do it. I try to do whatever it takes to win the game, and yeah, that's also what I tried today. The games are coming so thick and fast. Do you, do you actually get much time in the training pitch to plot it all out and try and get your head around what exactly you need to do to tackle Saka? Um, yeah, we didn't have a lot of time to to prepare the game because we play every third day, but that's enough. Uh, that's enough for us. We are used to this um, to this rhythm, and we're feeling great in it. So we got to keep going. Uh, it's been a brilliant week. Three different competitions. There's going to be a lot of talk about the treble. I'm sure you as a player are going to say you're not talking about it, but it must be a huge motivating factor. The opportunity that presents itself over the next month to make that sort of history. Of course, it's a it's a great opportunity, but it's still uh, there's still a lot to play for. There's still like seven Premier League games. There's still the semi final in the in the, uh, in the in the Champions League. There's the uh, the final in the FA Cup. So yeah, it's possible to win it all, but it's also possible to win nothing at all in the end. So we gotta we gotta stay humble. We gotta um, focus on the next game because that's uh, that's the most important, and that's uh, against Fulham on Sunday. Thank you. It's so hard to stay humble. It is so hard to stay humble. When they're so bloody good, it is so hard to stay humble. They're so dominant. Um, How good is that guy? I, 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 you know, I mentioned the, the amount of money that they spent, but 15 million quid to bring in him last summer. Mm. Now, they have a relationship with Borussia Dortmund, so I'm sure there's uh, lots of ways of getting these deals done, but nobody spoke about Akanji coming in. He's played all but two Premier League games. He's played right across the back four, and he's a great, solid very experienced international in a season when they've had constant injuries with their centre-backs. He's been a constant in that back three or back four. So, yeah, another very good piece of business done by Manchester City. I was going to ask, is it possible that Arsenal don't win another league game this season? And then I checked their fixtures and who have they got next? Chelsea. (laughs) It's Chelsea and Frank Lampard, who is literally the worst manager at the moment in the history of football. (laughs) Unless, of course, uh, Mauricio Pochettino rocks up uh, between now and then and they somehow offer him so much money that he has no choice but to take between now and the end of the season. Is Lampard going to be manager by next Tuesday night? Surely I, not. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, it, there, there's a little bit of me if I'm a Chelsea fan going, sorry, Mitchell, you're, you're, what, what are you, you're recharging your batteries? How long is this since you've had it? What are you, you're scouting for next season? What, what are you, putting your, uh, you're putting like your team together? Mauricio, Mauricio, likes a, Mauricio likes a good glass of wine. He likes to get himself in shape. He, you know, when he's ahead of these big jobs. So he's, you know, Going to have a couple of nice glasses of wine over the next couple of months and then spend the summer getting himself ready to rock. I, but like, this can't go on at Chelsea. Look at this squad he picked last night where they basically just dumped all the players uh, that they that they paid so much money for in January. Uh, the fixture list isn't kind for Arsenal. Like, it's so strange when you're leaving last night the conversation. Arsenal are still top of the Premier League. Uh, even the conversation last night when they're five points clear going into that game. You just cannot see Manchester City with their fixture list dropping points twice and with their goal difference they need to dro- they need to at least lose one of them too and Arsenal to win all their games no it felt felt as though Arsenal were were done and yeah the likelihood is it just peters out it'll be a big achievement for Arteta if he can get them up and they can go and they win all the rest of the games and put it up to Manchester City and maybe make an interesting City play Chelsea as well right towards the end of the season who knows maybe they'll have found a bit of form sorry we but should everything we should do the rest of those fixtures then so uh, Chelsea are at home and then they're away at Newcastle. Is there anybody in the world who's making the case that they're going to go... Arsenal are. Yeah. Arsenal are. Yeah. Yeah. Ar- and so, is there anybody in the world who can make the case for me that Arsenal are going to go to St. James's Park... Nah, not a chance. And, ...and do a job on a Sunday afternoon at half four? I, I don't actually know. I don't have the... But I presume 
um, City are, City will be playing before that because they're playing on the Tuesday night against Real Madrid and then they've got Brighton at home now Brighton stuffed up last night um, but if they hadn't I think Brighton would still be in Champions League uh, mode and then they're at Forest who last night had a massive massive victory and so therefore won't be still need the points yet, yeah more than likely and will still be in the hunt for, um, for safety at that stage and then they've got Wolves at home on the last day of the season <laughs> I think that'd be Wolves yeah it's a very very difficult very difficult fixture list now maybe Brighton have given it all they have and they're the perfect team for teams to be facing if something to fight for between now and the end of the season the only thing that could derail Manchester City is somehow you know what Akanji said there they're in the rhythm of playing every three games that somehow they're upset by that but you look at their fixture list Fulham on Sunday Fulham are going in that nice mid-table position where you know do they really fancy it against Manchester City or are they going to look elsewhere to pick up their points they got West Ham at home they always beat West Ham at home next Wednesday night. They got Leeds. Okay, Leeds are going to be scrapping away. You just hope, as a neutral, that they would just give a bit of a glimmer of hope. You know, drop points in one of those games. Arsenal keep winning, and maybe it gives a bit of excitement between now and the end of the season. But you're right. With the way Arsenal have been playing over the last few weeks, going to St. James's Park to take on Newcastle and the way Newcastle have been playing. Yeah. You know, Newcastle probably be favourites for that game. It just feels a little bit like false gods, though, that this Arsenal team, um, I, I, you're all giving them credit for overachieving with this group of players, but this was their season. I, I keep seeing, like, oh, the team's really young, the age profile of uh, particularly the attacking players, and they've got good centre-back, and it's like, yeah, grand. But when Pochettino finished second... His team had the youngest average age in the Premier League. Oh, this is definitely going to happen. We can write this in and mark it. You can't. It's like, you know, next season, uh, Man United are going to be better. Liverpool are going to be better. Chelsea are going to have a manager who's not bad. Uh, you're going to have Newcastle with a further season. And all of a sudden... But maybe Arsenal are better. Maybe, maybe Arsenal maybe are better. Are. But that will, maybe that, will, that will come down to investment. Mm. Like, our, the problem with Tottenham was they put themselves in such a brilliant position and heard Damien Delaney on Monday night, you know, going through them once whatever. wow that was a heck of a team but they never went and invested and supported them and put themselves in a position that when you know Deli Alley had this huge dip in form that there was anybody there ready to step in so are Arsenal ready to back Mikel Arteta now by you know one two centre halves are they willing to go and back him and spend a lot of money on a centre midfielder like they're not nobody's ever mentioning Arsenal in the mix There's for no- Jude Bellingham despite the fact they're guaranteed Champions League football next season there's no that's true there's no there's no chance that this is a flash in the pan is there like a, a there, one there season is, there wonder is some for chance. Arsenal there is some chance that's oh, the point that, like, absolutely it's not it's not guaranteed that Arsenal are going to be in the top two next season at all it's not guaranteed they're going to be title contenders next season at all I think um, that's the one the question here from Shane is this how the Premier League plays out for the next ten seasons one team challenges and then City blow them away on the home straight I think to Nathan's point that unless the financial investigation and allegations are proven and there is a serious enough punishment to prevent them even then if Pep was to stay and they were able to keep all their current players like if the if the punishment isn't relegation if the punishment is like a three season transfer embargo they've got enough young players and they've got an age profile of a squad that they would still be able to compete and you wouldn't back against them but it would it would even the playing field a little bit I definitely would. Like you're right when you look at Foden and Alvarez coming off the bench. But the age profile, like it is interesting. You now look at Kevin De Bruyne at 31, Bernardo Silva, Ilke Gundogan, all getting into their 30s. That they are going to need to rejuvenate again over the next couple of years. But if Manchester United, whoever buys Manchester United, if they invest and if they maybe even more importantly than the investment, because United have spent so much money that they actually sort out the footballing side yeah. and that the support structures are placed and that they buy the right players. If Manchester United can get there 
Chelsea can get there. Liverpool probably going to be more difficult unless FSG decide they're going to go and spend a little bit more money. But like, we do have to acknowledge all that has gone on behind the scenes and all that is questionable about what's happened with Manchester City. But they have got it right on the football side. It's easier with all that money, but like they have gone after Erling Haaland from a very young age. They've put the processes in place to ensure that there was really no doubt as to where Erling Haaland was going to go. Mm. There was talk, remember, at the time of, well, Haaland has his career mapped out and he's going to spend three years at City and then he's going to go to Real Madrid. Well, he might. Maybe that would still happen. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not ruling that out. I've got a, more comments now, here. But Sorry. Now, obviously, all, all these things have been cancelled. Go on. I don't think they've been cancelled. I think that he, like, if he wins the Champions League this season, what other mountains are there for him to climb at Manchester City? He'll spend two seasons, then go and spend three seasons at Real Madrid. That's what you would do if you're, like, sketching out a fancy life. Mm. Like, you go to your dad's club and you win the Champions League and you score 55 goals. I don't know. Could he get to 60? He, he might. wants to win ultra. He has to win the Carabao Cup next season, Jerry. Okay. Oh, he'll he'll get to, he's on 49. Yeah. Well, he he's gets, on 49 and he's got, he's got 10 games left. Well, I was just wondering, do they keep playing him in all the games now? I'm not sure they do. I'd say the rotation starts heavily. And you, you absolutely make sure that he is just fit for those big three games that are left, the two Real Madrid games, and then the game against one of the Milan sides in Istanbul. And that's all that matters, because they are going to win the league. And I don't think Arsenal are going to pick up enough points to make it even interesting beyond, like, uh, maybe Chelsea. Maybe Chelsea. Get them back on track. Yeah, but, but, but again, that's not going to happen quickly enough, because they've got three games in the next ten days, and he will start certainly two of them against, you know, at home against West Ham if he starts again. Have to next Wednesday night. All right. Uh, does this not put Liverpool's ridiculous points totals when finishing second in the context? Madness, they've won it only once after being that much better than a team like this season's Arsenal. I mean, that is true. Bruce Robert fan club says Frank heading for the door Mark Stellini. I mean, he may well be. <laughs> I think it'd be difficult for uh, it'd be difficult for Todd Bowley to humiliate the Hall of Famer Frank Lampard in such a stunning way by firing him after five games, but he might have to do it. You might just have to do it, Todd. Someone was making like is Frank heading towards a position where they have to withdraw the Chelsea legend status, where he's no longer on the wall outside the club. He just brought great shame. We loved you once, Frank. But Bad. It won't get to that, I don't think. I don't think people will see this current Chelsea demise. It's not even Lampard's fault. If Lampard continues to lose games, ultimately there's a common denominator there that's not Frank Lampard. It's like he's the he's Would he's it be in a better position if Graham Potter had stayed in charge? Yeah, definitely. They would absolutely. Yeah, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have lost their last five games, and they might have been better in the European fixture. Absolutely, would have been better if Graham Potter had stayed in charge. And we now, like, we we know that that's not like. A, oh, I think they would have. Like mm. Frank Lampard has been an absolute disaster. Talking last night again about not having a magic wand. It's like that's not your job. Your job is just to inject a little bit of purpose and confidence for a very short period of time. You're not trying to fix the long term thing. You're literally there as a stopgap because they've just hired your replacement guy. Vibes. Exactly. And he's not good at the vibes, it turns out. They needed you and Bez. Uh, United and Chelsea spent loads, but the difference is that Pep is a brilliant manager and they are very well run. They still have 115 charges against them, thus as Noel Cahill. We've done that. It's amazing what you can do with a good coach, good players and an impressive state apparatus, says Nigel Gallagher. Uh, I presume Jerry's hoping for a draw tonight to keep Villa in the chase for Europe up to Villa. I mean, I actually, no. I, I don't think Villa are going to qualify for the Champions League. And so you want Europa League, not Europa Conference League. And so you want Man United to crush Spurs tonight and for us to finish ahead of Spurs. That's, my, that's what I think. Uh, Fergus Keogh says, Pep, the great pretender, given the money, no object, freedom to buy any player he wants and then discard him and buy another if it doesn't work. Nathan could win the league. Speaking of Nathans who could win the league, Wunderkind Nathan from Ted Lasso. That's been the 
major theme of season three. You're a complete fanboy. It turns out you mm-hmm. met the crew of Ted Lasso last night. That's why I said you're the greatest night of all time. I want a photo. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fair play to David Myler. He's a good photographer, isn't he? Uh, yes. Uh, so before the game, um, I was down watching uh, Erling Haaland. Missed a lot of chances in the warm-up. Erling Haaland missed a lot of chances, which was a good precursor for what was to come. And I looked down to my left and I realized, there's Noel Gallagher and Jason Sudeikis and all the rest of the uh, Ted Lasso crew. Uh, didn't think too much more of it. I, I do love Ted Lasso. And I was walking down to the mix zone afterwards and standing outside the mix zone where there's three of them, Jamie Tart, Coach Beard, and Ted Lasso himself. Where it's like there's... They're either great actors or they're actually just staying in character because I did feel like I was with the three characters. Like, Jason Sudeikis is wearing his Richmond jacket. Wow. <laughs> Method actor. Uh, and they were standing outside uh, the mix zone, obviously waiting to meet uh, the Manchester City players and Arsenal players as they came out. And I thought, screw it. You know what? I'm going to get my photo. Before the game. Very nice men they were. No, after the game. After, after the, game. the game. Sorry, after the game. I thought, sorry, you were talking about missing the chances. Okay, so they're after the game, they're in the mix zone like fanboying the footballers and you're there fanboying the famous actors yeah it's a never ending circle of fanboying well it's not never ending it, it stops it it stops at you <laughs> there's no one yeah, fanboying you true. it turned out that's very that is very very true I didn't fanboy the footballers so I think that counts as staying okay, I, I, okay. I, I don't fanboy the footballers in the mix zone it's just uh, okay okay just the, uh, okay I guess yeah, yeah no yeah. Well, well saved yeah well saved that's a fair point and so uh, give us more celebrity gossip here Nathan this is the bit that could go viral for us uh, well I was hoping Noel Gallagher might appear again because uh, just to um, well I am a, a big Oasis fan and I do love Noel Gallagher not quite in the scale of Cullum so just more just absolutely sick in Cullum I was hoping to get the old uh, Noel Gallagher photo, but it didn't quite happen. But yeah, obviously, I, I was in America for a few weeks, and like Ted Lasso is off the charts big in America. So it's obviously you know it's the number one success story for Apple in uh, this part of the world. But in America, it is it is football now. Like that is football has been viewed uh, firstly through the prism of Ted Lasso, and it's helping grow absolutely everything else. Uh, and this season, as you mentioned, they have the access with the Premier League where it's a bit more like real life. And uh, obviously you said uh, West Ham are a big part of the season, which I do wonder how they feel about that. But they obviously signed up for it and are happy about the publicity. But yeah, they're very chilled out. They were just hanging around uh, like, you know, like all the other uh, rich folk who hang around those places. No, to meet the footballers. no journalism done. No, like because this is the, the last season and they have said it's not the end of the characters. Did you, did you ask them like, oh... Is it going to be beard? Is it going to nah, be tart? What's photos. It? Just get the photo and done. What's going to happen? No, you don't want to be... Do you want to be that guy? They don't want to talk to me. Well, you'd be on TMZ now with like 15 million views. Like, I mean... You're, 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 did, you not hear, did you not hear that Manuel Akanji interview? Is that not going to go places? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. The, a bit niche. Uh, Sudeikis is a funny guy. I remember meeting uh, Brian Cranston before. The thing I found, Nathan, about these Hollywood guys is uh, they all smell great. Like when you're when you're After a football match and they've been there for a long time, well, so don't anyone was smelling too good. Turns out being rich makes Jamie you smell Tar- good. Jamie Tart looked like he was smelling smelling all right. They're like the photo is even reflective of their personalities. Coach Beard is a bit you know out there. Uh, Jamie Tart looks like he'd rather be anywhere else, and Ted Lasso's just happy go lucky kind of guy. Yeah, very good, very good. Uh, you, you know, you know, Roy Kent is the comedic genius behind that, and then also has like another massive uh, hit in the states as well. He's, um, there you go. Yeah, it was a shame. It's a shame uh, he wasn't there last night. I, I did do an old Gallagher interview about football at the, on the way into the World Cup final in 2006. Did I, have I, did I name drop that one? Colin no. Oh, Colin Colin no, 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 no,
kind of a four. It's incredible watching Gallagher at the Etihad uh, at a big game. Like he just has the run of the play, so he just basically walks along the sideline, shaking hands with every footballer. And last night, as you would expect for a game of that magnitude, like it felt like all the Arsenal invincibles were there on the sideline, which can't help when you're warming up when you have Dixon, Winterburn, Keown, Vieira, Perez all standing right there in front of you. Uh, but no Gallagher just goes around shaking hands, does a few interviews as he's going around, wherever he sees. Yeah, no bother at all. Up to his box. Happy days. Yeah, looked like he was having crack in the box. Uh, right, Nathan, good work. Well done. Thanks, right. guys. No, oh, yeah, okay. Jesus. That was, uh, no, the praise isn't good he, enough. He's friends with Hollywood people now. Does he, he doesn't want to yeah. talk to us. Yeah, whatever. Like, ah, leave me alone. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, I, I see some people uh, giving out about Ted Lasso. Hey, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? I, I haven't got on to the Ted Lasso What's vibe yet. Is it is it worth watching? If it is worth yeah. starting now, yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. It's always worth starting. Okay, I'll get into it. The best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago. The second best time now. Wow, what a line! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm gonna get into it. I, I like I like the sound of it. I think. Is the uh, point. Bayern win the league every year. Whoever the manager is at Barca, when you inherit Messi, Xavi, Iniesta, blah blah blah, they didn't. They like he didn't inherit. Xavi uh, was was asking for a transfer, and then Guardiola goes, "No, you're going to be my main man." Like, come on, you come on, you got to know some football history here. Like, read read Graham's book. It's like you'll honestly, Pep, for all his foibles, mm. uh, what he did at Barcelona was change football. Um, you don't just you just don't know now. Everyone thought Arsenal would beat Southampton comfortably. I mean, it's true. It is true. Uh, Dennis Ryan says more OTB unchecked hyperbole City are not by far and away the best team in Europe Trent Alexander best fullback in the world how did that pan out for Nathan Martinelli world class uh, <laughs> Trent was certainly the most creative fullback in world football for he a was. period of time there Dennis um, I don't know time. if everybody else was necessarily saying he's the best fullback in world football but um, yeah just seems City are always able to turn up the ante late on in the season says Andrew Moynihan could Arsenal finish third they look toothless in fairness to Man City it's a real fairy tale story says John Claffey uh, Pep was playing Deserby ball last night baiting Arsenal press and then using Haaland as a traditional number nine to transition into attack quickly after, with De Bruyne playing off him I think that's why he was uh, given out to Ederson it obviously wasn't for that specific incident yeah um, I, I do wonder, and this point was made by Arsenal fans last night, are, has Arteta played too much of this starting eleven too often? Like, are they just at the stage now where energy is the thing? Like, Perhaps. Well, Partey looked, well, he didn't look fit whatsoever no. last night. So I think that was the, the, the case for a few of those Arsenal players. So maybe there's something in that. Uh, Kenny the Dad says, you should find Owen wherever he is in the world and ask him his thoughts on it all. And Spectre Corp says, Owen is taking ayahuasca in the jungle somewhere to cope with it all. Now, ayahuasca does clean, cleanse the system inside and out. It's, uh, you know, there's it's puking a, that's part of the, the process, apparently. A lot Maybe large fans felt like puking last night. A lot of puking. A lot of puking going on. Other orifices may, orifices may yeah, also yeah, be involved. Yeah. Four minutes past eight this morning here on OTVAM. We'd love to hear from you. 87 is the WhatsApp number. You can get in touch on the YouTube stream, as many of you have been doing, or you can tweet us at Off the Ball AM. And we're live every morning with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition is available now. After the break, the Arsenal perspective from the Evening Standards, Simon Collings. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. All right, it is six minutes past eight this morning here on OTB AM. I'm delighted to say Simon Collins joins us now from the Evening Standard to give us the thoughts uh, on the Arsenal perspective specifically. Simon, we're in the middle of a late season swoon for Arsenal at the moment. Um, can they stop it? Doesn't feel like it after. After last night, I think um, everyone knew sort of Arsenal headed to the Etihad with with the title on the line, given the situation with City's game in hand. And 
as much as it was about the points for me for Arsenal, I kind of feel they needed a result to, to shift the momentum to get the the title back on back on track. And now we've seen so many times in the past when City get ahead in title races, they just gallop off into the distance. And I think for Arsenal, it's kind of feels like that that dream of winning the title has gone. And yeah, the nature of the result as well last night, I probably probably did damage too. The performance was so overwhelming from Manchester City. Is there anything in retrospect that Arsenal could have done to interrupt the pattern that we saw? I mean, the, the difficult thing is if you look at who he had available, I think he probably played what most supporters would argue was his best team. Um, the debate I would have is, as difficult as it is in how great Arsenal been, do you need to sort of adapt when you're playing someone like City? And I, I, before the match, I was looking through to see which teams had had success there. Um, and I think Brentford were one of the few teams that won the, the only second of Premier team to stop Haaland scoring. And they dropped very deep, played three centre-backs um, and targeted De Bruyne. That was their plan. And Arsenal basically did the opposite of that, you know, pressed very high, gave Haaland space to go into. So I, I think in retrospect, um, not so much the personnel, but the way that Arsenal set up kind of played into City's hands. If you're going to push that high, if you're going to try and get tight to Haaland, you run the risk of him rolling you. And I think the way we saw him and De Bruyne linked up, summed up how you know Pep won that battle quite quite comfortably. It sounds, Simon, like a bit of a, a tired cliche maybe and, and rationalisation after the fact, but the the experience of the City players in, in games like this, games that, that titles could hinge on versus the, the lack thereof within the Arsenal squad, is that a factor that, that we should take into consideration after last night? I think so. I think you've got to appreciate for a lot of these Arsenal players, this is their the first title race. And I think it was the same at the game at the Emirates where City just sort of managed the whole occasion um, a bit better than Arsenal. And it was a point that Thierry Henry had made a few sort of weeks ago that Arsenal had got a bit too emotional in this title race, which in itself is tiring for the players. And City just almost kind of feel you know, like a robotic juggernaut which just rolls on and on and on and, and Haaland sort of sums it up, doesn't it? You know, you never really felt like last night that they were going to sort of get overawed and lose their heads. Um, they were just efficient. They got the job done and for Arsenal, maybe there's there's something to learn in that, that, that if you want to be a team that's constantly competing at the top, sometimes you've got to try and take the emotion out of these things. The the absence of William Saliba um, undoubtedly crops up when a result like that happens or results of, of recent happens. Um and, and he's been out since that Lisbon game and, and you look at Arsenal's form since and the goals they've conceded, Simon, like, are there just no answers? Is Rob Holding just not good enough as a replacement? Has this Saliba injury almost led to the, the downfall of the title race? Yeah, and, and the big thing with that Saliba injury in the night it happened was that Tommy Asu injured his knee on, on the same occasion. So I think if Tommy Asu was fit, it's quite conceivable you would have been seeing White and Gabriel playing centre-backs and Tommy Asu playing right-back, but that right side options was dwindled quite significantly. Um, I mean, holding, he's a, he's a fine squad player. I think we've seen in the Europa League that he comes in and does a job late on in games. He can come on and, and help uh, the team, but for an extended period of time, which is basically he's going to play sort of 11 league games on the spin. I don't think he's good enough to be playing for a team that's competing at the top of the Premier League. And it's quite brutal to say that, but it's just, just a matter of the fact. And, when Arsenal look at the recruitment in the summer and their investment and they want to improve the squad, midfield we know is a big area. We know they want to sign Declan Rice, but I think this run of games has shown how there needs to be someone coming in at centre-back. There needs to be a bit more depth for Gabriel and Saliba because at the moment the drop-off 
just seems too big. They also will next season have proper Champions League action to contend with and so therefore the need for the squad is it's a force multiplier. It's not just you can't kind of see your way through the early stages of the Champions League, particularly when you don't have the experience of it that Arsenal in this squad don't have. Definitely. And, and I think there's definitely an accusation to be lobbied at Arteta that he hasn't rotated enough this season. I mean, the first half of the campaign, you say he had the luxury of playing the Europa League and he would basically make 10, 11 changes on a Thursday night and then bring back the Premier League team on the weekend. He won't be able to do that next season. So they need to have greater depth, more competition for places. They've got it in some areas. I think some of the recruitment's been very good. I think someone like Trossard underlines that. But yeah, next season, he's going to have to be you know, stronger with his rotation. And City are the best at that because they've got the best squad. I mean, I can't think of anyone else who would have a player score a hat trick at Wembley at the weekend and then bench him the next game. But City can do that because they're so strong. But Arsenal next season, yeah, that is going to be an element that they've got to try and try and manage the squad a bit better. We were talking earlier on and wondering if there will be an opportunity in the summer in terms of the transfer. Like the the Cronkies have invested massively uh, at, at moments where it feels like the team are about to succeed in their American football team, if, you, if fans of the Rams will know that they've splashed money, um, and there's a downside in American football in that you kind of have to pay that back at some point. Whereas in in soccer, if you invest in the team and you get good young players, then you actually get to to reap the benefits of that long term. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Cronkies double down and think, yeah, this is a strong position and let's build strength on strength. So there's there's at least some reason to suspect or hope that they will be involved in uh, big transfer dealings and a number of big signings this summer. Yeah, I don't I think the Cronky since you know the past few years when they've they've sort of turned the the club and their reputation around we've seen that they have a willingness to spend money in the transfer market if if the deals are right and they backed Arteta quite heavily and he is someone who does you know put pressure on the club both publicly and privately we've seen in press conferences he talks about maximizing every transfer window. I think he's only had one window when he's been at the club where they haven't signed someone. So I, I think Arsenal will be wanting to to kick on from this. The, the spaces of the squad is there. It's very strong. And the fact, you know, you say you've got those young players who will get better. But the argument that Arteta will make, you know, when he's talking to the board and talking to Eddie is they're now playing Champions League football. You need that bigger squad. You need more quality. And that's something they've got to address in so how, how far behind City are Arsenal, Simon, in, in, in those terms? And we, we know the financial clout of City, of course, and the money that's behind them. Martin Keown, we were making the point earlier, he, he was uh, saying on TV last night that, that he feels Arsenal are about 10 years behind Man City at the moment, which maybe is quite reactive to, to a result like last night. But you can't really argue. A lot of teams feel like they are a generation almost behind City. Yeah, I think for 10 years is a, is a long amount of time. I would, I'd still think they're a few years behind City. And just because... That that squad depth, you know, the strength that City have right through away through the squad, and then Phil Foden being out for a month and it's barely talked about. Um, Nathan Ake misses out last night, and in comes you know Kanji and does a brilliant job at left back. The way that they can cope with these injuries is so much better than anyone else. And Arsenal, I think, when they've got their full eleven and everyone playing, and you'd, you'd include Saliba in that, I think they can match Man City and match basically any side, but. The challenge is when they don't have everyone fit, which you know is going to happen across the course of the season, are they able to maintain the level? And that's what City can do better than anyone else. Um, I think Arsenal, when you look at the squad, it's so young, it can get better, it can improve, but it needs a bit of additions and it needs yeah some time to try and catch City. Um, I, I, look, I, I know the Arsenal fans are like, oh, we're building and it's been a great season and uh, you know this is us now, we're going to be contenders. But history is actually littered with teams who 
come up have one of these seasons and then don't actually get the opportunity ever to win the league title again uh, that's not saying that this team won't but they will need significant investment there's no guarantee that, they, that every signing they make pays off it was right there for them if they'd won the three games that they drew from a 2-0 up at Liverpool from that position to get to here it's been like a fairly catastrophic swoon it's been it's been really painful I think for the way these sort of four games have gone you know they've taken three points um, it's, it's, as I say, it's the manner of what's of what's happened to get to the situation they're in. And, um, when they look back over this run of games, I think they'll be disappointed with the City match, of course. But those games against West Ham and Southampton, I think the ones that they'll look at and realise, yeah, you know, dropping those points, it stopped them coming to to the Etihad with the cushion. It gave City the you know the door was open for them. It gave them the chance to push. And I really think for Arsenal, as much as the, the title we feel like it has gone. They need to finish the season in a, in a strong fashion with with some wins because, as you say, it has been a brilliant season. But for supporters, you can feel it sort of fizzling out. And I don't think they'll want that to seep in the summer and next season. They'll want to finish on a, on a strong showing. Uh, what did you make of Mikel Arteta's tactics last night, Simon? Because uh, I was making the point earlier that, uh, and Sean Wright Phillips made a similar point on, on, on TV last night as well, where you can either go full press against City, you can sit back and, and, and let them at you. But Arsenal almost last night were in between. Um, it was almost like they, they were unsure of, of what exactly to do and how to approach that press. But is that Arteta, on, on Mikel Arteta? Did he get his tactics right or wrong last night? I mean, I think he came to to the Etihad to play the way that Arsenal have all season as opposed to you know trying to nullify what City do. Um, and they were getting pulled around so much. I mean, Holding and Gabriel, for a lot of the goals, the distance between them is is crazy for two centre-backs um, getting dragged up the pitch. And for me, you know, I, I kind of feel that Arsenal needed to show City maybe a bit more respect, maybe drop a bit deeper, not try and press them so high. I think I can remember from that very first game of the season where we saw Holland against West Ham racing through sort of 30, 40 metres and realising, wow, this guy's pace is incredible. And if you give him that space, he'll cause you problems. And I feel too often they were letting Haaland get up ahead of steam, get at them. Um, and yes, I said, you know, played into to City's hands. And when, when Arsenal look back at it, I wonder if that's something that they'll think, you know, maybe we should have tried to drop deeper, try and make it harder for them. And even at half time, we everyone could see it wasn't working. Didn't really change it. And most of the substitutions, again, were sort of like for like. So... I think that's something that some Arsenal fans will have criticism with Arteta in-game sort of tactical tweaks. Is it there? Um, as opposed to the changes being trying to keep plan A working better than it is. Yeah, quick question about um, Katie McCabe. She was captain in the two-all draw at Wolfsburg in the first leg of the Champions League semi-final. Uh, they're dropping like flies in terms of the injuries that Arsenal have at the moment. So it's no gimme, no guarantee at all. It never is in the Champions League semi-final second leg. But um, her performance was uh, so dynamic and suggests she probably will be captain for the rest of the season. Is that is that likely to be the case, do you think? I think it could easily be the case. Um, I mean, I remember being at the Bayern Munich game when she was walking off the pitch in a protective boot and crutches and then somehow she's playing on the Sunday. So, yeah, quite ridiculous, her powers of recovery. But she is someone at the moment, you know, that Arsenal squad are missing four definite starters for the rest of the season. And a lot of what they're playing on is sort of, you know, spirit and energy and trying to keep going. And she sort of epitomises that more than anyone else. Um, and she's a big person in that dressing room. For the, um, for the second leg, you know, they're going to have hopefully a sellout. The club are pretty hopeful about that. I think they're close to sort of 55,000 tickets. 
And the value of that will be absolutely massive for us. I don't think you can really underestimate what it will do for that team to have that big support. So, yeah, it's a, a difficult situation for them, but McKay playing a playing a vital role for sure. Uh, it, it's a really interesting turnaround from a bit where it looked like she was actually on the way out. Now, there was never a transfer request, at least that we know of. The I don't know if the, if the bid was formalised to a point where they had to really consider it, but... It just goes to show you when you stick your head down and keep playing football, anything can happen. Massively, yeah. And I think um, I think it was Chelsea were the, the sort of biggest club that were interested in buying her. And when you have Chelsea trying to sign you, I think it shows you're doing something right. For, for Ida Val, she's a really important player simply because of what she brings in the dressing room, we say, but also her versatility. You know, we've seen her at left back. She was playing further up the pitch at times against Wolfsburg. That sort of player who can slot it anywhere to a team is absolutely valuable and I think from Arsenal's side there was never a never a desire to let her go and um, yeah right now I think we're seeing the sort of value of, of what she brings to that team Simon good stuff thanks a million cheers for joining us thanks guys uh, Simon Collins from the Evening Standard giving us his thoughts on the situation at Arsenal three quick ones for you here Noel Kyle says at Shane I asked you yesterday if O'Sullivan was playing well you said yes it was obvious he was not playing well despite his 10-6 lead Owen O'Connor, Shane put the hex on O'Sullivan. Andy Jennings did a double on Gallopin Deschamps and Ronnie O'Sullivan. Thanks, Shane, for your overconfidence. I just want one last thing on this before we go to you. <laughs> but, uh, they come back for the second half and the BT announcer was like, oh, the snooker, they've they done a bit for the snooker, you can mm. watch it live on Discovery Plus. And yeah. she's like, well, there's no way that the drama at the Crucible could match what we're seeing uh, for tonight. And I'm like, like a 28 year old Wunderkind who's never done anything in this has just won seven frames in a row against a seven time champion yeah. I mean come on and I love the way at the end of the snooker last night late last night C. Jaoui won an, a dramatic decider against Anthony McGill the, the reporters on Eurosport were like well the football doesn't matter this is way more dramatic than the football so they're obviously, obviously some kind of beef in their own little bubbles Shelbyville um, versus Springfield sorry people blaming me. I was getting messages on Twitter as well for people bl- me letting down their bets because I, I told them to to maybe gamble on, I did, sorry I didn't tell anyone to gamble but Ronnie O'Sullivan the seven time world champion is 10-6 ahead in a race to 13 frames against Luca Brussel Ronnie had been playing okay he was he was sick against Pang Zhongzhou in the first uh, first round and he, he was still won 10-7 he was dominant against Hossein Vafai a match I was at at the Crucible at the weekend uh, and yeah you came home that's your fault well this is it maybe I, I, like I met as I said yesterday fist bump Ronnie Sullivan maybe I did put the hex on him but it's not really my fault leave me alone uh, but we've got two good semi-finals we've got Irish interest Jer as well Mark Allen Plays Mark Selby in the in the semi-finals, and then we've got Si Jawi against uh, and, um, who's uh, uh, the other side of the draw is Luca Brasella, of course, who beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. So two decent semi-finals. Continuing the clanging name dropping that we've been doing all morning on the show ever since uh, Nathan put up the picture of him meeting the Ted Lasso crew. Uh, you were chatting with Ronnie O'Sullivan, and he's going to be in studio in a couple of weeks. He is. This is the this is the breaking. We haven't told people this yet. Hey, but because um, a lot of people are messaging me, going, "Where's the Ronnie interview from the weekend?" Um, yeah, Ronnie will be in studio in, in a couple of weeks' time, two, two or three weeks' time. So watch this space. He's you're, got a new book coming out. So you're burying the lead, though. He he stopped and recognised you. Yeah, he did. He did. From a, so I've spoken to Ronnie a couple of times, done a couple of uh, really fun interviews. I have to say with Ronnie because people warned me. They were like, "Oh, he's not a, you know, he's going to be a tough character to sit down with." But Ronnie was super pleasant. 
I have to say on, on every occasion I've dealt with him. Yeah, he was hopping into the hopping into the car outside the crucible stage door the other day and uh, came back to give me a little fist bump and have a quick chat. So I was buzzing, obviously. Twenty two minutes past eight, OTBAM live every morning with Gillette Labs, get the ultimate shape or your money back. Neon Night edition is available now. We've got Vinnie Perth in studio talking uh, football next now. Vinnie Perth is with us. Vinnie, good morning to you. How are you? Morning, how are we all doing? You were uh, comparing your, your uh, snooker record there with young Shane. Yeah, I had a misspent youth in snooker clubs. Um, there was a time where there was loads of them in Dublin now. Mm. You really struggled to find a, a snooker club unless you're an anorak. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, actually, play, we played in FAI Cup final in 2018, and Pat Hoobin is plays league snooker and that in Dundalk. So, so that's a high level. Yeah, so uh, it'd, be, it'd be really good. But I played them um, the morning of the final in, we were staying in the Radisson, so that's Ken Dartley's practice room. Mm. Amazing room. St. Helens, yeah, yeah. Uh, memorabilia and all that stuff. Just an amazing room. A lot of Manchester United stuff. But I remember uh, myself and Pat played one frame, and I beat him. And to say Stephen Kenny gave out to me when he found out <laughs> it was hilarious and and not everyone was you know in the background chuckling away and he was like proper giving out to me what the f- <laughs> did you do David Cuffin you should have let him be you know so it was good fun put the uh, hex on Hoban yeah yeah, how did we play? still we, well? We still won the final, so forget how Pat played. That's uh, <laughs> that's not important. It's irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you know Pat Lewis and doesn't come kindly to him, you know. All so. right, so you ruined his day. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. one frame, but you'll take it. It was just one frame. It wasn't a, it? Wasn't a great frame either. And and the championship pockets are so tight, like so. <laughs> it was really difficult. Different size, of course. Different, different. Uh, so what's your record break? Uh, I broke 50 a couple of times so 67 I wouldn't be shy about telling people but right. not um, bad at all yeah but I gave it up I, I honestly I think my wife you know the butt of the queue threw out the butt of the queue once just threw it out like and never it, ever really played again is there again. more to that story that you want to tell us no 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 it's not a Tiger Woods <laughs> moment I don't like it so, so. Uh, and once that went you just couldn't I just couldn't play picked yeah. up a different cues yeah, and this, just this, this happened to Stephen Henry like literally it was the end of his career it's so, mad so now my challenge is breaking 90 in golf that's me, me new thing now so obviously as you get older your your priorities change but breaking 90 in golf is now right yeah now my challenge close yeah uh, about 93, 94 Ooh. recently Damien Delaney would um, would probably tell you I'm over 100 but no uh, I'm close <laughs> to 93 no. Damien Delaney is just ridiculous at golf by the way is just he ridiculous yeah. like down to three or four is he he's one of them you know when you play with someone who's too good it actually takes the enjoyment out of it yeah he's down and play, I think he's playing off one is he already like, okay I'm going to play off these white tees back here lads I'll see you in a minute type of stuff you know? yeah 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 just, yeah, just rubbing it in yeah, it's yeah. annoying Shane, you've been uh, curiously silent on your record break. No, I'm I'm not a, a great snooker player at all. Like I, I love I love playing it. Watch, I'd say my highest break is maybe early thirties. Like I'm I'm not a consistent player whatsoever. I do have my own cue, so I, I walk in with this uh, case, take it out, assemble the cue together, and then and then like proceed to play crap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm all I'm all talk, I'm all show. But sure, listen. I'll get there someday. Someday I'll break fifty, Vinny. Um, you were watching Liverpool last night before we talked to. Yeah, yeah I, I obviously watched both games, and sadly I watched Liverpool after the uh, Arsenal uh, City game. But um, Liverpool fans will, and I know you have a lot of them listening. They were exceptional last night. I know they've had a couple of different moments. Obviously, go back to Charity Shield or against Arsenal, but. Um, he started Diego Jota who's been brilliant over the last few weeks but it looked like it was his third game sort of come back from injury took him off he brings on Luis Diaz 
and he was exceptional as well when he came on. Right. Uh, Thiago came on, uh, Nunes came on, and you're like, all of a sudden, you're like, this is this is sort of what you expected. This and and yeah, but it's also. Uh, the rebuilding has begun you can see in this Liverpool side there's obviously still a couple of things defensively Jean Matip was, was very good at centre half and we obviously seen Trent playing in midfield we've seen a little bit of that but um, I shot to someone big big Liverpool fan and he was like well, they still gave away chances they've always given away chances they've, like, the, the full backs are always far, a little bit too far forward for most people uh, but uh, they're so dominant as an attacking force uh, gap Gakpo has got a good goal mm. from outside the box but he's starting to find a bit of form and I'd say there's real hope for this Liverpool team um, when you strip back all of the noise and that comes around and the, the pylon that jumps on and when you look at their run-in you know it's it's a long shot because Newcastle and United have stole the march but they, they've got a lot of winnable games and I think that's five on the bounce or Right, something like that. So, because all I saw uh, was the last few minutes where Moyes is storming onto the pitch and you know giving it the yeah uh, about the penalty, and then you see the penalty and it's like, well, uh, it's not, it didn't really look like a penalty. Yeah, and I, I think, and I often find with David Moyes teams, and I've seen this when they were trying to break in Champions League against the top sides. I always feel he never goes for it. He didn't. They didn't go for it last night. Liverpool were really dominant, particularly in the second half. Um, Fabinho, Henderson, Curtis Jones played really well, and again. It, Curtis Jones is a good example of, of a player that hasn't looked good enough for Liverpool but when the team are playing well yeah. it's very easy to look good good enough for Liverpool when you're just one cog in that wheel but yeah the, David Moyes went, went as you could see bananas over the penalty decision uh, but but it was only the last couple of minutes where they really um, West Ham had a, had a bit of a goal but, and again it, it will mean a lot to Klopp they went 1-0 down came back and won 2-1 um, so, so that that will feel important to him, yeah. and, and and the manner in which he done, as I said, they could have done it by a lot more. They were very, very good, and um, as I said, a lot of Liverpool listeners, I'd imagine, and they'd be a lot mightn't have seen the game, but there was a lot of uh, really good stuff from Liverpool last night. All right, so not done yet. Uh, let's let's talk about the uh, League of Ireland Premier Division. Bows at the moment have a five point lead over Derry City. Shamrock Rovers are up to third now, which we kind of expected. Um, they've turned it around in terms of results. And it looks like it could be pretty exciting. Yeah, I think we're starting to see a bit of shape to the league when you look at in terms of position of people. There will obviously be a couple of teams, maybe like Dundalk, who who could go either way for them. But you're starting to see um, sort of the shape in the league, as in the top four. Uh, you'd expect it, probably not that way around. But but the challenge now is 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 this Bowls team capable of winning the league? I think that's the real big questions for people um, when. And, and that will be tested and I think this weekend they've got toys where you could say yeah they could they could go and win them toys so um, it's another back to back weekend back to back weekend which are usually important for, for teams trying to win the league I keep saying saying to you here that I think the performance of uh, Rovers will will be a bit like Man City they'll, they'll come like a steam trainer and probably win it but um for balls, it's a huge opportunity. Sometimes in a season, uh, every so often it comes that way, like UCD away and Cork at home. I mean, that's the it, bottom two. For bottom two. And sorry, yeah. yeah. And, and if they win both of them games, you're in 30 points after what 13 games. That's an exceptional start. That's league winning form. And you would think that they've got the finances in place to strengthen the squad and back the manager. And with Pat Fenlon working in the background, I'm sure he's already working on different players that they've, they'll spot most likely from outside of the league. So, um, do I think they'll do it? No, but um, 
but uh, strange things have happened and they've had an exceptional start and you, you know at that club there's been a huge sort of buzz off the pitch but if you add what they're doing off the pitch and onto the pitch as well it can be a really exciting time around Daly Mountain um, yeah I think uh, huge credit must go to to, to Declan Devine but also I think people um, and sometimes it gets lost in, in a bit of social media noise but Keith Long has left them a lot of good young players coming through a lot of people have made a lot of appearances and um, and to be fair they've kicked on Are Bowes Arsenal in this scenario? Or Shamrock Rovers Man City? I know you've been saying Rovers are coming but um, can, can Bowes hold them out? Um, For a significant period of time at least to make it interesting yeah, uh, that, I suppose that isn't that the challenge. I'm not sure. I honestly, I'm unsure. Um, I I think they're probably. I, th- I feel like they're short of what needs to be done. Um, but I'm, I'm mainly on defensive areas. But if they can strengthen that, as I said, get to the window with any sort of a lead, I think they'll have to finance to strengthen that. So the the key for me is. Um, they haven't played well up and dropped, for example, the other day and still won. And they've had a couple of results like that. And, and also the, the, the couple of games they've lost, they've went and backed them up with wins the following week. So they've showed, like, they've showed a good, again, I hate that lazy word of mentality, but they have showed a good mentality. Uh, young lads like, whether it's McManus or Clark coming in and out of teams, swapping and changing them. And um, like we said pre-season uh, myself and Richie here someone like Adam McDonald has been huge for them outstanding but they put pace in the team Dylan Connolly obviously a huge player for them but um, there's something exciting happening down there And but I would say to you um, they won't want me to use that analogy or for you to use it but it does yeah. feel like there's a bit of arsenal about them but uh, the difference is um, it, it, when it comes to the League of Ireland is that this is a season they can definitely build on and, and be the ones to push rovers if needs be. You feel like there's there's that there's enough youth in the Bow squad that they could be around for a number of years. It's not like it's a as we said earlier, a flash in the pan. It, this Bow's team should be around for for a bit of time if they can keep the squad together. Yeah, you would say by and large in League of Ireland nothing happened for years and years and years. It's because of the nature of it. But certainly there's a two or three year window with this team and again Will, will will some of the better players be picked off? They probably don't feel they need to sell as quickly or uh, as they did, or do certain deals as as they had to do. I mean, agents were looking for you know release calls of fourteen, fifteen, sixty thousand, and um, you would feel that they're in such a good position now that they can offer a decent wage that will that will can counteract that. On that, the the transfer stuff, like Jack Byrne. Um Staying put now after these MLS offers, but yeah. like as Stephen Brady was saying, he now has the right to play down his contract and leave on a free. So, I mean, obviously Rovers will be delighted that he's that he's staying put. But is it the right move for him? Do you think? Um, f- well, for him personally, I think the MLS suits him. I think he he could be he could do really really well over there. So for him personally, it's not the right move. But that's that's like tough Jack you know um, get over it that we pay you good money here Shamrock Rovers and, and that's life so it's it's brilliant show of sort of strength by Shamrock Rovers tells you I mean you've got to remember you're talking about winning uh, anywhere from a million once you enter the Champions League you're, you're almost guaranteed a million okay so winning the league this year guaranteeing a million and but also the opportunity to earn another five six million between Europe and getting to a group stage so for taking it and I believe the fee is hefty but taking a fee now would would weaken the chance of earning four or five six million so mm. they've just said no we want to remain in the Champions League next year we want to win the league we're keeping our best player I'm sure they'll offer him a new contract between now and then but um, it, it, again, 
windows and different things. It really, this was a good time from whether the window was open in the USA, come end of the season, etc. But um, it's a real great stro- show of strength from from Shamrock Rovers to say, no, we're keeping our best player. Mm. He's still young enough where he could have a great season, and then when whenever his contract is run down, you know, he could cash in himself at that stage, and um, you know, it could be a win-win basically. Yeah, you've got to. Remember, so, for example, if the club was willing to pay, we'll just use hundred thousand. Uh, to Shamrock Rovers, they might be willing to give Jack, for argument's sake, thirty thousand if that is a sign-on fee. Yeah, uh, it's all equatable. Yeah. People yeah. can work out the percentage and figures themselves. But yeah, so that's why it suits players. You look at the Matt Doherty deal, where he's basically free agent, and that's wow, great. great. <laughs> uh, ching thanks very much. Yeah, and, and that's that's the economics of football and letting players' contracts run out. We had it at Dundalk for years. We've lost people like you know Richie Tell when he was you know. Huge star at the time, Daryl Horgan, Andy Boyle, uh, people like that went for, and it, it's it's a challenge. League of Ireland clubs have always had. They're starting to see a lot more what they're calling multi-year contracts now. Yeah, and and that's like that's the risk, but they're doing they're taking those risks now from at least a more financially secure base than they would have been back in the day when yeah. shells were dropped. E- it's football economics. Yeah, let's yeah, call it spade. That's what it is. Yeah, and some some you win, some you lose. Um, the refereeing, obviously, we don't want to talk about it every week. No, but we end up talking a little bit about it every week. Yeah, it, it, it was. It's an interesting one because um, I think I think it happened to be Duffer's side this week that was live on TV, and there's a couple of interesting decisions. Um, um, the, the penalty decision, I think, was a penalty decision, and then there was an incident with, with Keith Ward and uh, Shane Farrell for right in front of the referee where. Keith Ward sort of pushes one player and the young player pushes him back around the head and he goes down home his head and you're like that's where uh, Duffer's comments against the referee you wonder do some of them go against him and is it time for him to go a little bit quiet now and maybe send out the assistant for a couple of interviews Um, but also just shows you the experience of older players the Dundalk players played the Shelbourne players but then in fairness uh, Shelbourne won a penalty that was you know, was dubious as well. But again, it was a little bit of experience in in terms of Evan Caffrey got in front of uh, Dundalk's defender. But then, the big the big learner for me on it was there was an incident where um, Paddy Barrett went for uh, a ball with the Shepherd, the Dundalk keeper, ball in front of uh, Shepherd, the keeper. It's debatable. I don't think he had the two hands on the ball, but Barrett's studs are up kind of high and you can see why the referee gives the decision but the big learner for for me was and where you've got to be fair to referees Shepard was lying on the ground holding his head and got treatment for a head injury like mm. studs nothing was near his head yeah. so in all sports you've got to give referees a hand and yeah. you've got to call out people and say you can't go down holding your head and get like lying on the ground nearly in a neck brace and you're gone so it's so difficult for, for people refereeing but um I think I I think on that on that game I'm not sure I think I think the referee could have could have given Farrell a sort of for want of a better word uh, an orange card instead of a red one and and to dump his, now he did raise his hand and all that stuff but uh, Shelbourne got played a little bit and yeah. that's the experience they've got to learn and but but it's a big learning point for us we can slag off referees and go onto social media when they make a mistake but when players are going to hold their head and get yeah. treatment you've got to be you've got to have a balance yeah yeah. I think um, everybody is always obsessed with the thing that they're most interested in and 
it turns out there's not a sport in the world where the referees aren't under constant scrutiny and everybody goes, oh, this is shite. We're yeah. the worst. These are the worst referees ever anywhere in our sport this particular week. And well, you, you take the... John Stone's goal last night I'm still convinced I want to see a print out of that well I wouldn't mind seeing <laughs> yeah. where the ball gets kicked yeah, I'm yeah. Ju- I just I'm, I'm, I know that the boot sticks out on one angle yeah but, but when there's the a different kicked? angle where the boot isn't sticking yeah. out it, it, it felt offside yeah like it yeah. felt like the, 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 the and I don't know I mean and, and again it's, it's to your point it's you know you, you, you hear stuff around was that a penalty in GEA was it not all this stuff it's it's part of the game but Diaz, I'm, not, Diaz, I'm not saying you, you shouldn't like no coach is going to say will you feel contact don't go down because no th- th- there is dark arts but it's when players take them too far they've got to be called out as well and the, that's the, the histrionics yeah that was always like part of uh, our football culture it wasn't the same as the uh, continental European football culture where it was like rolling around yeah but guess what it is now yeah yeah, yeah. and which was best I mean you know there was little aspects we could have taken from uh and, and there's some people who shout at me because I, and it's funny the best teams always are accused of the dark arts like I, I was involved with a Dundalk team that people say we manage referees like yeah. they, they did <laughs> yeah well you had to but the, the Dubs s- do it yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, if, so. if you look at the numbers so far this season Vinny so you have 14 red cards in the, in the League of Ireland so far 8, eight of those straight red cards do you think there's there are diktats coming from on high from referees in terms of certain decisions or certain types of uh, incidents that might lead to red cards or is it just a coincidence? Um, I would say some of them red cards are just poor decisions by referees. Then I watched one game where there were seven yellow cards and one red and they were all justified. Mm. So it's, it's how do you get the balance and all that? There's some bad decisions but there's always been bad decisions. I just I just feel that and I always I always say that on here is we're comparing ourselves to the UK where our, our yellow card count is over five on average per game. The UK is three-something. But actually, I, I, and um, no referee has confirmed it to me or, or, or on or off the record, a referee's assessor who I generally would, would see a lot of them now the way I view games. Um, I just think we referee to a European standard and what I mean by that is there's just different mm. UEFA rules around Europa League games and all the refs want to get to that level yeah and that's no and harm that's in the long term the refereeing yeah. slightly different and, and maybe the teams will see the benefit of that when they get to European football and they've been conditioned to behave differently do, do you ever see that yellow card and it's most frustrating for me is you know that one where that's your your third foul yeah yeah so what? Big deal. Like I've had three fouls in sixty minutes. Like that's going to happen. They're the ones that annoy me. I feel they've gone out of the English game. I don't think they're gone out. We call it European mm. stroke Irish game. Should persistent fouling not be? Well, depend. depend do you know like, what I mean? Like it's, people are going to cross each other. It's like well, well if you, do, I guess you know, it's intentional, right? Yeah, but look, foul like. I'm someone that used to make ten, twelve fouls a game <laughs> when I played. It was and it was a different game. Um, you know. It was different. Uh, it's a very GA thing where you've done that foul three times, and I know you're doing it on purpose, and so I'm getting you for yeah. the third one, even though it's actually a minor foul. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, consistency. And, and, and that's the that's the thing about refereeing. There's a lot of grey areas in yeah. terms of and whether something is intentional or not intentional. A fellow runs across you as you're running back. Yeah, where did you want me to go? Type of stuff. And yeah, there's balance with all of them. You know. Um, well, uh, there was an interesting foul last night where uh, De Bruyne 
uh, there's a foul on him and he's like it was four on three and they're like oh that's the third time no he was saying it was four on three which means it was a goal scoring opportunity yeah. and you'd have to like well actually uh, you are Kevin De Bruyne and that is talent so it probably is a goal scoring opportunity <laughs> and therefore it could have been a red instead of a yellow but anyway yeah but the biggest scourge in our game at the moment in world football I would say to you, is time wasting so people criticised the World Cup for 12-13 minutes and I was loving it yeah. free kicks are taking two and four minutes yeah. there's a new trend in football now where players are getting injured to allow tactical stuff. You're seeing it with goalkeepers because people know if my goalkeeper goes down. I've seen it in League of Ireland games and yeah. it's so obvious what's yeah, happening. Yeah. And until someone deals with that, and, 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 and the problem is, how do you say whether someone's injured? Goalkeeper goes down, we have to stop the game. One of the things that I think about football that has an advantage over, say for example, particularly GAA, is that you could have a, a, a load of professional referees who are contracted centrally by the FAI. And this brings us nicely to the other uh, issue of the week which is the Horse and Greyhound Fund and a story that has been running in fairness to the Irish Independent they, they, there has been uh, an independent review carried out by a firm and it's apparently 70 pages long I, I hope it'll be published about how the distribution of that fund which is topping up 1.4 million 1.4 billion in the last 20 years and this is a story that we've covered uh, since we launched in, in 2002 the Horse and Greyhound Fund get um, guaranteed uh, in the statute books it used to be 60 million and now it's gone up every year and it's split 80-20 in favour of racing uh, versus Greyhound racing and the money was supposed to come from betting tax but ultimately we've had to um, contribute from the Exchequer funding as well um, the story came out, Eonor Reardon uh, from the Labour Party raised it in the doll, and Leo Varadkar said, no, 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 you can't pit these sports against each other. That's uh, You're going about this all the wrong way. Uh, Colm used the word gaslighting about Varadkar's response to it. And um, it's interesting, though, because they closed ranks. The Minister for Sport came out and said, oh, this is a matter for the uh, yeah. Department of Finance, and we've given loads of money to the FAI. Basically, well, shut up. Well, well interesting, because like, imagine being able to get a panel of referees who, as you said, are full-time. Or, uh, I mean, there's so much good work on on the FEI. For example, it's at, at the moment, and they need more funding for it, but at the moment, just one tiny example of, does it does it transition year? Every kid has now the option to go trans year, transition year in school. So the FEI run a brilliant course for the last number of years, a lot of really high-profile players. So instead of having a transition year in school where you do home ec or I know teachers will shout and say no it's a bit more than that right and you learn how to solve or whatever does, does it in Dublin now you can the elite players are going to do the transition year based as footballers so they're doing all the strength working as full time footballers brilliant brilliant tool by the FEI it's run out of um, I think it's fingerless or it could be cabra but it's a, a brilliant tool and it's so hard to get onto it now because all the elite players want to do it and their parents are willing to say if I had a son who's any good at football this is a massive opportunity so but the problem is I think there should be more of them around the country yeah. we need a bit more funding and help it should, it should be a pilot programme that has worked and now we roll it out but. so so all of them different ideas and, and to come back to the main point and, and I'm sure Dan will be in the studio at different stages the problem Dan's article is a brilliant brilliant Irish journalist who does it the problem with Dan's article is and the problem with the way we frame the argument is that you get the answer that Leo Varadkar gives you yesterday because you're pitching one sport against the other and even though and I'm not saying Dan and he's very clear in his article that he's not trying to and everyone will say oh no we shouldn't take away jobs away from horse racing we shouldn't the problem is we're using it we, we can use that as an example to say look how good an industry can be if you actually fund it 
So give us similar funding, even similar funding or half of that funding in football. But when you frame one against the other, then you get to, to sort of mm. basically if Radker said, because Aidan Rudin, I believe, is a big Pats fan, he basically said, just go away. And I imagine, and I know the FAI are in the background trying to develop. Uh, communication lines with the government where they're showing them different things and they probably aren't looking at looking for this bit of noise at the moment that we are, are talking about but we do need more funding it's just by pitching this argument against it I think actually mightn't help us as if, and I'm not saying that's right that doesn't help us because did you hear Varadkar's answer yesterday he basically said what we all, what I felt he would say is no they do a great job they do this and, and he's factually wrong about as you can see about the Deloitte report is basically saying you can't count people that work in betting shops as working in the industry mm. but we have to frame our argument as football people better and that's why I do say things like don't ask RTE to turn up and put them on top of a chipper van we, we have to frame it right and it becomes partisan basically uh, you're, you're, you're splitting the you're splitting the two industries and, and maybe as you say pitting them against each other which isn't good for either yeah, Jer's not. I don't think he's agreeing with me here. I don't agree with you, right? Okay. And, and I'm also bleeding, so that's uh, not a great. This isn't going to look great on telly. But um, I, I think that actually sometimes you just got to rattle the cages. I think that football football deserves to stand on its own two feet. And I I, I buy the central thesis of the argument that if we're going to take money off the gambling firms, then some of that should go to football in in a proportionate in a proportionate way, which will be twenty percent of the funds. Now, I, I get your point that you have to live in the real world and the politics of this is going to be very interesting to see. Um, wh- what does Sinn Féin think about this? Because they're the ones who are going to be in charge of the Department of Finance well, well, inside the next couple well, of years. Well, where, where Varadkar needs to wake up and read the room and, and smell the coffee is that you take Talib for argument's sake. And I, I don't know about you, I think I, I'm at an age where I love... Uh, election counts, whether it's USA, England or Ireland, right? Sit there all night. And so many seats, so many elections are decided on a couple of hundred votes here and there, okay? Across the world. There's 7,000 people in talent now, every uh, week. Leo Varadkar got in on the last count, the last time himself. Right. You know? So, if I was a politician in talent, for argument's sake, I'd have a billboard on the side of the pitch of Shamrock Rover Stadium. Okay. So can, I, can I just say, I, I, I've been all around, all the Fianna Fáil politicians all have, uh, in Dublin, all have, so uh, I was in Castleknock, uh, and I've been in, uh, where, uh, where's the other one out there, in the Navin Road, where's uh, Paddy Andrews, what's his club, anyway, somebody, somebody remind me, yeah. there's, um, there's a local Fianna Fáil politician right there, so they know the game, yeah, yeah. but that's the GAA. And they're they're in bed and embedded with that, and I just feel like football could do a little bit of find your people within the organisation and go. Why aren't we getting the same money? If this money is coming from gambling and lots of people are betting on football, yeah, then give us some of that money. I so think that's fair. Dundalk, four and a half thousand, three and a half thousand people. Are, the loud seats are, 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 are swing either way. You can go away, Cork. I'm saying. One, if one politician does it, like there is people like Charlie O'Connor who does, hasn't run as a TD recently, you see, all we see him in Tallow is Rover stuff, and there's a bit of there's a bit of politics behind that. He, he fell out with the GAA lads because he he was nice to the to the soccer lads, right? But the, <laughs> the point I'm making is, we, yeah, we have to do it, and we've di- and I think the FEI are trying to do it. From what I'm hearing, and it's very quiet. They're trying to sort it, come up 
the nice way. I understand. And you that have too. to build um, trust, trust within government, and people have to understand that. So uh, again, uh, by the way, Dan's article is a brilliant read, and it's fascinating, and it's it's obviously really good journalism. I'm just saying, I'm only trying to make the point is we can't. It's it's like people come in and go. Do you ever see those? assholes who are in Dublin airport every Saturday morning what are you giving out about them for yeah. like stop yeah. stop we'll, let's do, actually get them that they love Haaland or Ferguson and Hoban or yeah. Jack Bourne whoever they're and, actually your, your people you just yeah, haven't convinced and, them yet and, and so I don't know I'm just saying a huge amount of money we can be really we can we can like be so good at this sport if we get funding and yeah, I, the I, huge I, benefits uh, I've brought it up before sorry yeah. think of the local guards and the FEI run a na- late night league in I'm not going to mention the area crime will drop by 45% to 50% on the night they run the league and they run it for six weeks windows sport and soccer can help society government need to see that and you need to give us money to do it not just at elite level and then um, and help like soccer sisters uh, last Easter the FEI had coaches everywhere soccer sisters throughout Easter was brilliant and that the knock-on effect for that is women's football in this country will improve and, yeah. and, and different bits uh, and pieces participation levels go up the cost of health goes down more people stay in education longer mm. there's like mad knock-on impact and I'm, I'm not saying it should just be soccer but I do think we do need to revisit the horse and greyhound fund the greyhound industry does not deserve the support that it gets from the exchequer it has not been able to stand on its own two feet its track record is not great when it comes to uh, safety issues they keep saying that they have fixed all those and maybe we'll talk about that again some other time but, but is it okay to say football man that's that's their argument yeah. let's have us yeah. our own argument yeah. that's no, and you're uh, right you're right about getting your own house in order as well it just it feels like one of the things stopping the house getting in order is that there's no political support and the political support won't come unless uh, and Varadkar's comments about where yesterday I thought they were a little bit dismissive of soccer. Maybe Castlenock isn't a hotbed of, of, of soccer, um, and it's more GEA. But that's not good enough either to just to dismiss the the argument that Aidan O'Ridden was making. Le- Le- League of Ireland, Irish football, FEI deserve a bit more funding, and I hope the back channels are working. Well, we'll come back to this for sure because um, it's definitely really important. Vinny, good stuff. Thanks, Thanks a very much. It's uh, 8.53 this morning. OTBIM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night edition is available now. We're going to be hosting a live UEFA Champions League roadshow in partnership with Just Eats coming your way on the 3rd of May in the Mansion House in Dublin. Going to be joined by UEFA Champions League winners John O'Shea and Wes Brown along with Arsenal legend Paul Merson. It's going to be a brilliant night's entertainment. This is an exclusive off-air event and tickets are limited so don't delay. Go to offthewall.com forward slash events. We will see you on the night. Just Eat, the official food delivery partner of the UEFA Champions League. Uh, Colm, yep. what, what's your favourite Champions League memory? New Camp, 1999, 1-0 uh, down, Bayern Munich. Mario Basler's six-minute goal when Clive Tillesley said it's taken to the deflection, but it actually went straight in. Oh, And what a game that was, and like the Teddy Sheringham and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer moment. Like history would have completely changed forever and ever if the Bayern Munich defence cleared that ball sufficiently <laughs> and then... The shot wasn't uh, hit back in and then Sheringham finished it. But from there on, United added another Champions League in 2008. And I was looking, lads, because ahead of this roadshow next week, you have John O'Shea, you have Wes Brown and you have Paul Merson. Now, I love, by the way, Paul Merson's autobiography. Uh, buy it, read it, how not to be a professional footballer. But uh, Wes Brown played in the 2008 Champions League final 
the next time Manchester United won the Champions League crossed the ball in for Cristiano Ronaldo his left foot on his left foot yeah. and Brown was a brilliant right back that season for United when Gary Neville was injured he did exceptionally well sort of out of position they used to say about Brown that he was the most naturally gifted defender in that generation Kenny Cunningham was United. full of praise them last week brilliant player yeah and then there was no John O'Shea in the starting eleven that night in in Moscow. He didn't even get onto the pitch. But the following year, 2009, John O'Shea did get onto the pitch. In fact, he started the game at right back mm. instead of Wes Brown, who wasn't in the squad at all. That was the dire 2 0 defeat in Rome against Barcelona, where Alex Ferguson said the preparation for that game was all wrong from the hotel to the food, everything. It was a disaster. I thought the disaster was the team selection where Fergie uh, 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 picked a midfield two against the best <laughs> midfield trio of uh, the modern football's history. Mm. And the score, and the, well, the um, 3-1 followed then in 2011 in the same matchup, Champions League final, this time at Wembley, where neither O'Shea or Brown played. Same margin of defeat. It's funny that they, um, when, I sp- I when I spoke to Clive Tilsey before, that Basler free kick moment, he, he actually said he was thinking in his head, that was his first Champions League commentary game, He's thinking, you know, five minutes left, ten minutes left of the match. He's like, there's been one goal. Bayern are going to win one nil in a pretty dour game. And I've got, I've got the call wrong. Like I literally said, deflected and in. And as you say, it didn't touch anyone going through the wall. Straight past Schmeichel into the bottom right corner. And then, of course, the, the Schmeichel and Sheringham, or the Sheringham and Solskjaer moments happen. And, and Tilsley's commentary just goes down in folklore. It's unbelievable how, how it just happened for him. Yeah. Like it'll be interesting to hear the lads next week talk about it. Like Brown would have been part of the of the squad at that stage. Like just about getting in, and O'Shea would have been a very young player. Merson, I'm sure, was watching on from afar, as was everyone. But that is such a freak game that match. Like Bayern hit the woodwork twice after going one the lot. Mehmet Scholl and Jan Carsten Yanker. Carsten Yanker, saying not Jan Carsten Yanker. And like United were just completely dominated, missing Roy Keane and Paul's goals that night. Like David Beckham had to move inside the centre mid, which I'm sure contributed to him becoming a runner up. Yes, when Blomqvist start the game. Blomqvist started right mid in place of um, yeah, yeah. of Beckham, and then Giggs is in his usual position. And Nicky Butt was the other midfielder, but they were just thoroughly outplayed. Like and. Uh, the end of the game it's, it's just a freak of nature and actually Alex Ferguson in that documentary that his son made a couple of years ago talked about how he when it was into injury time and it, they were still 1-0 down and they were getting a few corners he was preparing what he was going to say to the players afterwards mm. in defeat saying I'm proud of you you just didn't do it yeah I mean go on. There are mo- I was just going to say there are moments where you're, you're, you, you think as a child your, your father is God essentially and, and unbelievable there was, there was a moment when I was, I was a kid for that 99 final I remember 1-0 down gutted as a, as a young Manchester United fan and my dad said just before uh, that the first corner for the Sheringham goal dad goes don't worry Shane United always score this is the 91st minute and then of course Tilsley five seconds later says can Manchester United score they always score so I was thinking my dad said that before the commentator hey. this guy's magic there you go yeah. and then the rest is history Sheringham scored like four goals that season yeah, one of, and then Solskjaer injured himself when he uh, slid in celebration. Yeah, he scored in the FA Cup final sharing on that season as well. Like right, a couple Newcastle, of important yeah. goals. Yeah, yeah, Newcastle. But um, well, I mean, like obviously that's that's something that everybody in generally our age group remembers. But like oh eight, nine, and eleven, certainly now since then, because United have come absolutely nowhere near reaching the pinnacle of the Champions yeah. League. What a generation that was! Like we probably didn't even appreciate it at the time. I, I love the AC Milan Juventus three final. Like nobody else did. You remember the Old Trafford one that went to penalties? That's one of my favourite Champions League finals. Only because I was I was of a certain age where I remember just that AC Milan team, Shevchenko and all these lads and Pirlo. I was just obsessed with them. I remember buying an AC Milan jersey. Yeah. So I just remember one of the worst Champions League finals of all time is actually one of my favourites. Do you uh, prefer a Saturday night final or the old Wednesday night final? Ah, Saturday night. No, the Wednesday nights are, are definitely the best from a historic perspective, but Saturday night's much easier to get to. Yeah. Um, and have a few pints as well. So uh, the event is on 
in the Mansion House on the 3rd of May. That's uh, next week. It's going to be John O'Shea, Wes Brown and Paul Merson. We will. I'm insisting that there will be some Aston Villa talk on the night. Um, it's an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited. You can get them on Ticketmaster or you can get them off the ball.com forward slash events. Just Eat, the official food delivery partner of the UEFA Champions League. Right. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. It's uh, off the ball. Sorry, youtube.com forward slash off the ball for the live stream. Or you can also tweet us at off the ball AM. Now, we're turning our attention to hurling. And it is going to be some weekend in the Munster Hurling Championship. I'm delighted to say Limerick legend Joe Quaid is with us. Joe, good morning to you. How are you? All good, Joe. Um, how, how do you feel about how Limerick are going at the moment in the Championship as opposed to uh, on the year to date? What's your assessment of where they are? Look, I suppose every day that Limerick goes, there's a, there's a target on their back, the same as any champions. Um, every team is going to bring their A game. Uh, every team is... I suppose, tried to devise a, a strategy now to beat them. Um, a lot have tried. Uh, some have got really, really close, but nobody has kind of figured it out yet. I suppose from a Limerick perspective, I would be happy in one sense that we got the win last weekend, but with the performance, I don't think they were a sharp. I think they were a bit sloppy at times and we were very, very lucky to get over the line, but I think John Kiley alluded to that people were writing off Waterford. Waterford have been probably as consistent as Limerick without getting over the line over the last few years. They've been in all Ireland semi-finals, finals. Um, so they're, they're not a bad team. So I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be hitting the panic buttons in Limerick yet. Uh, I, I'm sure. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody will. It's um, it's more that sloppiness and. Kylie afterwards when he was talking about it was seemed genuinely angry and maybe look some of that's performative and some of that is a message to his players and it felt like he thought that maybe some of that complacency was seeping in and you can be sure that that they you know that leadership group are so experienced they're also so talented that they're not going to allow that to happen for a second week so what do you want to see in terms of performance and sharpness and the absence of the sloppiness how, how do you make that how do you, how do you see that happen this week Look, that, that just happens because of, of lack of concentration. Um, as you say, complacency kicks in. It kicked in at times. We weren't uh, as sharp. We weren't delivering the ball as clean. We weren't breaking tackles the way we used to. No, a lot of it was was down to Waterford and, and uh, the challenge that they brought. But I suppose that challenge can only last for so long. Clare brought it last year. The one thing about this Limerick team is when... They, they seem to be hitting a dip, whether it be after a game, they can recover massively for the next game, or whether it's during a game, um, they seem to be able to readjust. Like, you you take last last weekend, they missed the penalty. I think within a minute or two, they were down to 14 men, but yet they reeled off the next three points. Um, they've just had an, an, an unbelievable knack of, of managing their... Uh, the on-field side of it themselves, but look at the, at any stage, any team can be beaten. It's it's why we love sport in general. Um, you take the the mead ladies footballers go back a few years ago; they were never even heard of. Then they go and do what they did. So there's no team out there invincible. And we all thought Dublin would win ten All Irelands in a row. They they were brought down. Um, so look. I think John Kiley, it was probably a perfect storm for him last weekend in that there's two points on the board. 
but he has a massive stick to go back and beat the players with uh, this week and, and work on, on, I suppose, the mental side of it. No one will ever question their their work rate. No one will ever question you know, their fitness. But it, it's just uh, the mental aspect of the game and, and how they prepare, prepare themselves, I suppose, for a titanic battle because while it's not absolutely necessary player win, I know teams have got through with four points before, but you lose your first two matches, you're, you seem to be definitely behind the eight ball. So I'm, I'm expecting Clare to bring an absolutely massive challenge the weekend. Is there an ulterior motive, Joe, to those John Kiley comments? In, and I say that in respect to Limerick's success. And sometimes when, when a team almost becomes so successful, you have to find new ways of going back to the well and finding motivation uh, each year at the start of the campaign. Uh, and there's a bit of a siege mentality because his comments here listen let's be honest about it there was some amount of bullshit spoken about our team and the season ahead this week and the week before is that a a siege mentality thing to get the the motivation into the players heads do you reckon I don't think so look we've all listened to John Kiley's interviews over the years and you know there's no kind of I'm saying nothing about that or Mm. you know Brian Cody type uh, yeah, we'd like to congratulate the opposition. And that the one thing about John is he speaks from the heart. Um, so I, I, w- I would trust John enough to think that's how he felt. Um, will that pass through to the players? Absolutely. Um, is he sending a message out to the players? Yes, by the interview, but I think they won't be left in, in any doubt when they, they met after the first night after training or in the dressing room after the match to, their standards. Look, they set their own standards themselves and their standards are, are ridiculously high. So I don't even think John will will need to uh will, will need to say a whole pile to them. I often see him around Limerick they'd they'd be out having a coffee or that in pods and that and to be honest, I'd say that would be in a lot of the discussion between themselves even. Right, what went wrong? I think a lot of them would even do a bit of self-reflection and go, okay, what did I do wrong? What did I do well? What do I need to improve on and how do I need to do it? And look, they have, I suppose, in the, in the background, they're probably Caroline Currid that anybody that was feeling a bit left down by themselves and their performance, I'm sure she's at the end of the phone to uh, offer a bit of guidance on, okay, that's gone, park it. How do we get better for next week? Uh, Joe, talking to various people in the aftermath of the game as well, Waterford and Davy present a particular challenge that not many other counties are going to be able to replicate. So Clare won't be able to play exactly the same way that Waterford did, and, and nor should they. Um, but it, it's it's not actually the worst thing for Limerick to have had the jeopardy that they had last weekend to go down to 14 men, to have somebody offer them a different challenge when it comes to puckouts, uh, basically man-marking... Barry Nash so the short puck out was gone down that particular side and when the long ones were there that there was a massive competition for it so basically Limerick didn't have it all their own way and had to think their way through it a little bit fortunate a little bit unfortunate I'm, I'm either with the sending off if you think that way or the fact that Gerard Hegarty's first yellow was for Mountain and the fact that they missed a penalty which isn't going to happen again so all in all it's not the worst situation for them to be in where they've had to think their way through come through that and there'll be a little bit of confidence heading into next week Absolutely as I said just probably the perfect storm face and into the Clare match uh, I think bar a couple of players um, I, I don't think anyone can turn around and say yeah that was my best performance um, look sport it turns I, no one knows better than me 
a five minute spell in a game can can uh, change change a lifetime, not to mind uh, a, a game. But like if that penalty had gone in, then the the melee probably wouldn't have started. The sending off wouldn't have happened. We would have probably pushed on. It's all ifs and buts. Yeah, you deal with what's there on on the day, and I suppose that's probably their biggest strength is their their ability to adapt. I, I suppose everyone said when the water breaks were there that they went out like machines. They played for seventeen minutes. They came back in. Paul Canuck reprogrammed them, and they went back out again. Um, this is proof that they do it themselves. Um, you know that they're self-regulating. They're able to adapt to different situations. Like, yeah, they kept um, Barry Nash quiet from the puck outs. But yes, after going down to 14 men, there's our corner back above putting the ball over the back. Great score as well, yeah. Come here, what, yeah. <laughs> what, what about Declan Hannan's injury? Like, of, of all of the players, he's got a, a specific role. I'm sure somebody else will be able to do a version of it, but... Um, he's not one of the players that you're like, oh, there's competition for places there. It's like he's got a role. He's like, you know, genuinely the best at it in the country. And um, is there an obvious way to fix that? Unless we clone him, <laughs> I think. Um, he, is, he is just the best at what he does. If I suppose if you could ask somebody, what does Declan Hennon do? You, it's it's very hard to put your finger on it, but he is so integral. Like you, you could watch a match there for forty, fifty minutes, and all of a sudden the opposition are coming back into the game. You might not have seen Declan Hennon in the game early, and all of a sudden then he intercepts a pass or does a ball to be won. He pops up the field, throws it over the bar. It's it's worth three points, um, you know. So can he be replaced? No, but we're we're very very lucky in that. I suppose that back line is so flexible. Like Declan Hannon, our, our captain, our leader, came off. Um, Dan Morrissey moved out and we bring on an all-star full-back. Do you know, it's, it, it's, uh, it's riches that we have. Um, will the team be better with Declan in it? Absolutely. Come here. I was in the Gaelic Grounds last year after 15 minutes and Keane Lynch went off. And we thought, oh my God, this is disaster. Holiday are gone. Missing Peter Casey already. Um, they, they do what they did best or they adapted. Um, and, and I think everybody has a, a huge understanding of every role that everybody plays. And if somebody needs a dig out, I think they will, they won't be found wanting, you know, to, if Dan is under pressure there, which I don't think he will be. Will he play the same game as Hannon? No. I don't know anybody in the country that can play the same game as Hannon. Uh, um, he's just he's just gifted. Joe, I was curious to get your, your thoughts as well on the incident involving Grode Hegarty and the, the member of the Waterford backroom team. Uh, see, it seems it's going to get a lengthy suspension for that incident. I know at the GA Congress in February they, they brought in this eight-week ban for any physical um, interference by a team official towards a player. This this might be a more lengthy ban. We'll wait and see. But uh, what were your thoughts on, on that particular incident? Look, I suppose tensions are high. I'm sure that man, in, <laughs> after the match, um, well, he didn't seem after the incident to be upset by it, but I'm sure he will after the match. Um, my attitude is, you, you're out on the sideline. We've all seen Davy and, and Liam Sheedy and everybody and John Kiley probably, you know, 
pumping up uh, to opposition players and management and things. But this man came from within the dugout. Now, I see a lot of, and I, I, I'll use John Kylie saying bullshit on, media, on social media. Oh, Hegarty wasn't shot. It's irrelevant. He came over, yeah. he interfered with a player. Irrelevant of the fourth. Yeah, it's totally it's the action that that to me is completely wrong. He deserves a lengthy ban out of it. Um, probably didn't help himself by the way he was smirking coming off the field. You know when when he was put off, uh, probably lost a lot of support for himself because we all know when passions are raised and that. Um, you know, I suppose <laughs> Jory, you'd have got uh, you'd have got serious odds in the bookie. That if there was someone to be sent from the field for an altercation with a Limerick player, that it wouldn't have been Davy. <laughs> I thought he was unbelievably composed. He was, wasn't he? Last weekend, you know. I think uh, it surprised a lot of people as well with just how flexible the tactics were and how he got most of those big decisions right. And if his team had just had a little bit more composure coming down the stretch, then maybe we'd be talking about um, this in a totally different way. We'll see what happens this weekend, Joe. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. No bother, lads. Thanks a million. Joe Quaid there, uh, Limerick legend, giving us his thoughts on how the situation is unfolding at the moment in the Munster Hurling Championship. More hurling, of course, across the uh, evening and on the show. We're getting a few comments on your, your Opal retro oh, yeah. Opal top. Uh, curious, people curious as to where you might have purchased said top, Jer. An Instagram ad. I'm a, I'm a whore for the Instagram. Yeah. And um, I just can't... Like, they know how to get you, don't they? I've got no willpower. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. click, click, click. Yeah, I'll buy this. I, it's a, it's a size too big. I look like, uh, I look like Neville Southall in the nineteen eighty five <laughs> FA Cup final. It works. It works. But um, yeah, uh, there, there's a yellow one coming, and if the yellow one had been in stock, I would have bought about twelve of them. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. You were curious at the start of the show to give a little bit of praise to Conor Laverty, which I think. Oh, Conor Laverty, the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. Like Jesus Christ. <laughs> He was on the Monaghan backroom a couple of years ago and I was like, this guy knows what he's at but then he goes, of course, to his, to his native diamond which you can't blame him for. So he's managing the under-20s and the senior team and he was unbelievably eloquent after the under-20s last night. There's an interview on TG Carr, you can see it on their uh, social media. They, they beat Derry in the Ulster football final and then obviously they're playing this weekend against Armagh and so the four or five squad members in the under-20s who would be playing, only one of them was going to start, he said. Mm. Um, he, he let the players decide what they wanted to do, potentially play their last ever under-20s game uh, or you know, line out for the senior team, but the fact that he is involved with both of them, you know, and also just the style of football that they're playing, the quality of football they're playing from the absolute depths that they were in previous to this. Yeah, hundred percent. And he's brought the Kilku boys back in. That's one of the main things it, that that Laverty has done. One hundred percent, which is enough, I guess. But the the other thing as well, and I saw Conor Laverty in action. He was at Ogie Duffy's funeral last year. He was manager of the Down Twenties team, and he led that team so eloquently uh, in everything they did. Like the, he was just a. He's shown leadership on and off the pitch. That's one thing I would say about Conor Laverty, the, the man as well. Yeah, uh, mid thirties already. Sure. Um, one of the best and most important managers in the country. So uh, there's a good crop of young managers coming through. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition available now. Right, I don't know if this is technically GA or not, but I'm delighted to say we have the writers, directors and producers of a new movie called Lakelands, uh, Robert Higgins and Patrick McGivney with us in the studio. How are you doing, folks? Thanks for having us, Stuart. Uh, did you make a sports movie? Is that is this a sports movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we were uh, always keen to make a sports film, yeah. We, we grew up playing football and we always thought it was a rich area to make a bit of 
bit of a film about and explore the culture around it, yeah. Yeah, 100%. What are the criteria for sports movies? I'm not sure, does it? Like, <laughs> I, 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 so, I, I, we're watching it, um, I, the premiere was last night and it's in cinemas now? 5th of May. 5th of May. May, yeah. Okay, so uh, we can build up a bit of anticipation for it. But um, I think this is going to play well in America with the whole concussions subplot, like where, I, I mean... You think people know about concussion, but it turns out they don't. And that's a, not to give anything away here, but it's a central part of the movie. So, sure. why did you make concussion the the um, the injury as opposed to you know anything else that it could have been? Yeah, no, I think for us it was a, a very interesting, I suppose, jumping off point um, to explore other issues. Um, and I think the fact that it's an injury that's not visible, you can't see it. Um, I think that was interesting to us, and I think. Once we started doing a bit of a deep dive into it, we started having conversations with GA players who had suffered concussion. We had a couple of conversations with Laurie Ryan, who plays for um, Clare Ladies and at Lone Town. And once you actually begin to realise, you know, the the type of symptoms they suffer and um, how I suppose underrepresented it it, it is um, to an extent, um, we just felt that it was an interesting issue that you know deserved showcasing. Um, do you go into the uh, writing process deciding that you want to tell a story about uh, an, an injury to a footballer how does how do you build this kind of uh, jigsaw of information that we get from the characters yeah I suppose we we, we started just wanting to explore the culture first. firstly and then you know we grew up in and we always felt it was just strange that it hadn't kind of been represented more I think in the Irish cinema considering how Gaelic big, football in particular yeah, right. yeah considering how big a part it is of mm. Irish kind of identity so we were kind of use, it started from there and then we kind of used a lot of our own kind of personal experiences growing up and kind of filtered that in and I suppose a big interesting part for us was how much identity can got, get wrapped up in playing the sport especially in a small town Yeah. so we kind of started looking at maybe a character who it has to deal with that being taken away and kind of delving into that and coming at it from that angle and then using that as a jumping off point to kind of examine the kind of the niches and the little smaller parts of the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't your first spin at this. People who I think you can still see on the RT player, people might be familiar with your short movie called Drifting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, you you got Paul Mescal before or after he started to become Yeah, yeah. Uh, just before he, he blew up, yeah. He came from the normal people set straight down to Longford. So. Right. So he was he was used to filming the Gaelic football bits. He did, yeah. yeah. I think that was one of the reasons he was attracted to the script. He'd obviously a GA player himself, and um, I think he was excited by the opportunity to depict that world in, in, in a small way. And yeah. For us, it gave us a lot of confidence. You know, it was the first time we were out in a, on a GA pitch with a camera, um, and I think you know it gave us a lot of confidence that we were you know able to capture the that that world with a bit of authenticity. And it was it turned out to be a bit of a proof of concept for. I was going to say because yeah. a lot of the themes are are they're just longer, written larger. Yeah. Yeah, developed. we kind of jump back in with the characters when they're a little bit older, um, and for us that's a little bit more interesting. When you know you're, you're you've had your potential and you're kind of a bit of a fading star, and um, it's just an interesting par- uh, you know point to jump back into the story. Yeah, um, you're from Granard. Yeah. yeah, so this is this is a home <laughs> set on home turf. It, it is indeed. Yeah, like we wouldn't have been able to make it without the help of the local club, and uh, we, we definitely called in a lot of favours. You know, I've been playing for senior football for about twelve years, so I had a lot of favours to call in. So, and um, the boys came out to support. That obsession with GA, especially in rural areas, is is pertinent and it's so obvious in the film as well. Like, it, and it's it's ironic because lads want to batter lads a mile down the road more than a team maybe twenty or thirty miles down the road. It's yeah. so parochial and local, but you get the sense. <laughs> 
from the film as well. How significant that is. Yeah, no, hundred percent. Look, the GA is it's it's the lifeblood of so many communities, and and it gives people that sense of pride. Um, and sometimes that does boil over into you know unwarranted rivalries and all that. But um, I think we were just really keen to just capture that world with a bit of authenticity. And for us, like the asset test is and will be. GA players watching and saying, "Yeah, that's what addressing down for your coach sounds like. That's what a training session feels like." Um, and you know, we just seen it as a massive opportunity to to capture the world for the first time on cinema in in uh, on film. Coming, would you call it coming of age, or is it? It's not necessarily coming of age because the, the character is clearly beyond the the teenage years or whatever. But it it's certainly coming of something. Yeah, he's probably suffering from delayed adolescence. Uh, our main character, so I suppose it is a coming of age, even though he is you know touching his late twenties. But um. Yeah, no, I, I, I probably would call it a coming of age story. Um, the the players in the GA scenes are they your teammates from, or, or are they all actors? Yeah, Is it there, are, there are a lot of the boys now. We would have grown up playing right. with and that, and it came to the cold evening in November. They were getting a few phone calls and just come out and do a, <laughs> do a run around with us, convincing them to actually act right because it's not yeah you know, the the crisis of masculinity is the center of this whole thing here and yeah. you're like no no it's fine you, you just have to pretend to be the thing you do all the time and they're like <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> just be yeah. yourself it was what, funny because myself yeah exactly well look the, there was actually a bit of rivalry going in in, uh, in that uh, training session that we had it was a bit of a game and I think they forgot there was a camera there there was a few big digs going in they heard an actor was coming down from, from Cork so they were like right let's let's hop into him <laughs> It was easily done then. You don't have to. You almost don't have to force it. It's funny because that that masculinity that word that you mentioned, Jar, like it's it's a relationship with his father as well, which is complicated and probably more so for a lot of people in rural areas as well. That there's it's all unspoken. There's no I love yous and that sort of thing. And it, that's very much a sense with this relationship between the character and his father. Yeah, yeah. We started off with Keen that he has a big kind of shell up. The, the lead character is called Keen and. Um, he kind of has just a shell of, you know, he's a good football player and, you know, he's he's a well-known around town with the lads and everything like that. So we just started kind of looking at what it's like when you chip away at that a little bit and he kind of looks at opening up a little bit more as the kind of the film goes on. Yeah, yeah. And how difficult it is for him to do that. Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I think when you watch the film, you'll see, like, he's got different versions of himself. He's the version he is with his teammates, with his friends and then with his dad, of course, and... You know, his, his his dad is there from and, and does care from, but just doesn't necessarily have the the language to to, to verbalize to, it. Yeah, to verbalize yeah. it exactly. And like you know, his you know, it's 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 still you know, he's still doing everything he can. And like um, I think we just wanted to portray that relationship in 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 a way that felt real to us, um, and and uh, not just have you know the stereotypical Irish alpha who's very cold and doesn't care like he does care he just can't say it he can't verbalise it but the impact of him not being able to verbalise it is that uh, Keane is not able to verbalise either the really important things where he's just pretending that he's grand going to training because he can't talk about the fact that he's not grand yeah yeah, yeah it's definitely a kind of a cycle that's ongoing yeah and um, I suppose yeah it's kind of his journey into into breaking that cycle that's probably been kind of passed on um, ongoing yeah and then we've got the character of, of Grace um, Danielle Galligan she comes back from England and, and she's the first one to kind of chip away at that shell and make him realise that there's a big world out there outside of club football and, and the Midlands and, and Granard yeah. and the farm and the farm although I'm not sure <laughs> I, I, does he what does he know this at the end? I, I, I mean, obviously, it's up for everyone yeah, to make their own yeah, mind up. But yeah, it's up for debate, you know. Um, yeah. 
check out Lakelands May 5th and tell us what you think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, there's no, I think, could, could, I'm not doing, doing any spoilers here, but it's just, um, like, it's this incredible slice of, you see the substrata of, of, uh, of Irish life and the depths that are, exist there, while at the same time our complete unwillingness as a race of people to tell anybody how we feel. Or what we actually think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like for us, I suppose it was just uh, the biggest goal was to to achieve that to just that slice of life where it just feels authentic. And I suppose there hasn't been too many films shot down our way in Longford either. So just to show that little little corner and and how life looks down there. Yeah, yeah. Well, so can we talk about Granard? Because like Granard, just go for it. Shane's talking about driving <laughs> through it. Um, like for for my generation. No offense, I did drive through it when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's still a lovely little spot. <laughs> I'd never heard anybody describe it as a lovely little spot before Shane did it here. Like, because obviously it, it's famous in Irish culture for Anne love it, and like you guys yeah. must have grown up with that as like the thing that everybody knows about us. Um, and now you're making a, a movie about football and about life yeah. there. It's just, it's just a, like it's a character. You know, it's beautifully shot and it's incredibly captured. And even the the name of the Lakelands and the the eponymous lake, like it's stunning. Yeah, that was kind of shocking to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, you know. that's good to hear. But I suppose for us, we wanted to just shine a positive light on on Granard and the Midlands, and but while not shying away from the issues it currently faces, um, and and yeah, just to hold the mirror up and um, depict it in an authentic way, but also a way that's positive, and um, because we see it through a very positive lens, we're very proud to be from Granard. We love Longford, and we we don't feel we get a fair shake all the time. But I suppose we just wanted to make something that Longford people and people from the Midlands could watch and be proud of. You know? Yeah, I think you can argue though that like um, the 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 crisis of the film is actually you know a natural. Uh, it's it's on a, a, the same spectrum as the the place and the the traumatic incident that happened in Irish cultural mm. life. Like, mm. um, I don't know if you've seen the um, Pray for Us Sinners that's out at the moment, the documentary about Navin. I've been reading about it. Yeah, Sinead O'Shea's film. It's absolutely amazing, and uh, the I love it thing features in that as well. The mm. night of the night the story breaks on the Late Late Show, uh, Gay Byrne yeah. reads the headline and kind of just dismisses it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So like. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that you guys had this kind of perpetually in your the background here, but like, um, I would argue that they're all part of these movies are all part of the same kind of our our inability as a country to deal with trauma. And uh, everybody, they're doing it through football, they're doing it through farming, they're doing it through drinking, they're doing it through <laughs> drugs. You yeah. know what I mean? They definitely form a kind of an interesting network when you look at them side yeah. by side. Yeah. Different ways that it's kind of been processed for sure. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And like even Keen in, in our story, like he. He's dealing with trauma and, and can't articulate, and I think yeah, that's symptomatic of what it is to be Irish. Unfortunately, was it is Simon Crow did the cinematography? He did indeed. It's yeah. like how obviously you have to utilise that to kind of uh, not to get all third level English on it, but like to to highlight the the loneliness of the character as well. It's almost like a Banshees of Inisherin thing where you use the environment around you, whether it's the Iron Islands or wherever or Granard. Uh, and you use that to, to depict how lonely this character is, albeit, as you say, he has the character Grace around him and this tetchy relationship with his, yeah. with his dad. But but certainly the cinematography plays into all of that. Yeah, big time. Yeah, like we really wanted to capture those kind of wide 
landscapes and kind of emphasise, yeah, it can be quite beautiful but also quite empty and quite lonely at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So that was a big thing we were kind of flagged out and we were lucky to have Simon on. Yeah, on, on yeah he's a beast. He's he's a six foot three <laughs> ape of a man and like he, he just threw the camera on and in the middle of those training sessions just got right into the action and that helped us and allowed us to, I suppose, capture it with, with authenticity and um, yeah, he's he knows our farm down home better than we do at this point. He's been down so much, and he's he's shot every inch of it. But he's uh, he's a talented boy. You were shooting during COVID too, am I right in saying that, that, that there's challenges been brought there yeah, as well? Like it was like uh, walking a tightrope at times. But we we were able to shoot it in between lockdowns. Um, we probably shouldn't have went to the pub after uh, <laughs> the, f- the first uh, few days of, of shooting, but um, the whole town came in. But look, we were lucky enough to keep the COVID out. And um, yeah, I suppose we'd been deprived of being on set for so long. It was uh, just to be back shooting was was incredible, and you, you really appreciate it when you've when it's been taken away for a bit. How do you how do you divide the responsibilities? Like who's shouting action? Who's like <laughs> <laughs> we kind of just yeah figured it out. We're we're kind of lucky that we're. we're we grew up together with childhood friends, so you can't fall out too badly with your childhood <laughs> friend. You know, yeah. you can. So we uh, we just kind of trial and error, but uh, we kind of just split it evenly. Yeah. Um, and communication, try not to yeah, step yeah, on each other's yeah, toes too much. Yeah, we haven't cut off any digits yet. And in the when you're actually writing stuff, do one of you take responsibility for dialogue? One of you take responsibility for like blocking scenes? How does that work? Because uh, again, um, yeah, it's kind of we kind of would split it kind of. Um, it's we kind of kind of find it quite useful actually. We mm. kind of get two bites at the cherry nearly. You're nearly having two drafts at every mm. two opinions, and you can confirm things yeah. quickly. We we definitely have uh, similar reference points. You know, we know the same kind of mad local characters, so we can say, yeah, he's a bit of this guy, he's a bit of that guy, and um, I think just having that same kind of life experience kind of helps you to to move a little bit quicker through scenes. Was it all planned to a T, or were there certain scenes, even with, with as you say, characters from the town that cropped up that you're like, geez, that's actually really really good we'll, we'll leave that in or we'll, we'll adopt that a little bit was it all kind of planned to the nth degree or was it a little bit flexible uh, oh there was a good bit of flexibility yeah you kind of have to be live to it yeah, yeah. for example I, I think you've probably seen the calving scene in the film yeah that wasn't uh, actually yeah, right? planned yeah. at all yeah his that's dad, a real calf I was going to say I mean it looks like no it's CGI there no? it was, yeah, it was yeah. shot on his dad's farm and Porek just came running up the yard. He's like, grab the cameras. <laughs> it's, uh, there was one about the pop. But yeah, we were shooting in the middle of cabin season, so like, it would be amazing if we got it because obviously we were working off a, you know, a, a smaller than normal budget, and you know that's just incredible production value. But yeah, he came storming in and um, grabbed the camera, grabbed Aina, threw him into the mix, and Aina had about forty-five seconds tutorial on how to calve a cow, and Jesus. the calf uh, survived. So oh, I was going to say, no animals were actually <laughs> ending. He's, he's actually getting his hands in there. That's like that's him doing the right. That's yeah, right. and and the calf was unresponsive for the first few minutes. I was going to say, yeah, like, yeah. So my dad was there doing kind of charades behind the the camera, saying, you know, you know, give him give him the kiss of life, but. Right. Uh, um, yeah, he. he, uh, he I mean, a he, moment of high tension, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, it kind of set the set the tone then for the rest of the set because everyone was like, "Okay, this is a bit mad." If but. he can do that, then <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. So the movie actually premiered, I think, in 2022 at Galway. Is that right? Yeah, Galway so, the fly. Yeah, yeah. So you've had five or six months to decide what you're doing next. What are you doing next? <laughs> yeah, uh, so we're back to the road board at the moment. We're we're developing a new film with Screen Ireland at the moment right. called Bonfires. That's. Um, yeah, that's set in Longford again, so we're 
we're, we're hopefully sticking around for another, another next film in Longford as well yeah, and then we're kind of developing some stuff in the UK as well at the moment yeah so. we're not done with uh, Grand just yeah well, that's fair enough I was going to say sure Vince Gilligan and Breaking Bad led to uh, New Mexico being used as a, as a filming mecca so maybe Longford is the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. the mecca of Ireland <laughs> <laughs> it, looks, it looks beautiful it really does look beautiful I do think the concussion thing in America though is it's like um, you know oh, we can't talk about this it, we can't see it I think there's a good opportunity for the American sports writers to get behind a movie like this, you know, because it's not the same as um, the concussion movie and uh, all that kind of stuff. This is a completely different but very obvious high school sports equivalent. Yeah, we were screening over in America actually at the Santa Barbara Film Festival when a lot of this stuff was just really coming peaking in the news. Yeah. So we were getting a lot of people coming up with parallels, stories, and yeah. a lot of people playing American football and yeah. stuff like that. They were saying they'd kind of had parallel experiences. Mm. So. Hopefully it has a, a little bit of a life over yeah, there, maybe. for sure. So it's opening on May 5th? Yes, indeed. Well, we wish you the very best of luck with it. Uh, Robert Higgins and Patrick McGivney, uh, uh, you played senior for Granard, did, did you? Until I played, played just up un- until senior. You saw a sense early. <laughs> Get out of there, yeah. Got do, you, do you, uh, is it a love-hate relationship you have with GA? Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I think most club players have, have a similar uh, perspective. Um yeah, like, look, I, I love it. I love my club. Um, you grow up in it. You know, but, 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 that's the the thing. The movie is the but, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, as I said, like, we just wanted to show it, you know, in all its glory and not shy away from the more challenging aspects of it. I suppose GA, you know, it's there's an obsessive element to it just by its very nature, having to train four or five times a week. Drinking bands and all that. Drinking bands, yeah. give up, you know, your summers. Like, the claustrophobia of... Yeah, yeah. And, like, there, it comes with a lot of sacrifice. You have to give a lot of yourself to it and, you know, it affects people around you, girlfriends, boyfriends, you know, that, that can't, obviously... Um, you know, they, they have to give up, you know, you know access to you I suppose for periods of time during the season and um, so that you can go and be abused by a middle aged man living out his fantasies <laughs> yeah vicariously <laughs> <That's> great yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. but look we we're very passionate about it too we love it um, yeah. but we just wanted to uh, yeah show it in all its glory alright well listen uh, you did a great job well done lads uh, Robert Higgins and Patrick McGivney thanks very much for joining us in studio this morning go see it from May 5th OCB AM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave or your money back Neon Night Edition available now